Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. Was hard, but not anymore. Thanks to Wondersuite from Bluehost. Answer a few questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically create your website or store. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content, and we automatically help you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, all you peppers. Welcome back. Hey, this is Quinn. And I'm Ember. And obviously, this is the Fat Pod, also known as Fiercely Altered Perspective. And yeah. Yeah, we're excited about today. Today's kind of a lazy day for us. Right. Um, so today's episode is going to be a little sampling because last week we talked about how we are going through some changes and we are growing and all of that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. If there are any of our listeners who are out there that may also listen to some other podcasts, you may have heard about what is going on or you may have, if you've followed our social media, you know what has happened. But for those of you that have haven't we have joined a network right called murderly but you type it out murder.ly yes and there you can go and find a list of wonderful podcasts our podcast is included in there we are very fortunate yes and happy to be a part of the team and today's episode is basically just giving everybody a sample of all the other podcasts within our network right so with that said um still the same fat pod still yes. the same host still the same everything we're we're gonna be moving forward we are just part of a larger team mm -hmm. i guess is the best way to describe it so and it's very helpful for us some of the changes that you guys may see is there will be spots for ads sponsors mm -hmm. stuff like that and we appreciate everybody's patience or being able to i don't know roll with us because this is going to help us out <laughs> immensely right this will help us be able to continue moving forward with the podcast and make it bigger and even better right right and this is this is a good thing all the way across the board um it's not only going to help us but everybody else at murderly get their name out more and faster yes exactly. um, it's also going to help with different sponsors and things along the lines of that i'm not real sure on how this whole thing works but uh i know that our legwork has been cut in half yes <laughs> yeah so they what they will be doing with us is they help 
do that promotional side of things for us. That way we can spend more time working on our content and getting stuff out there. Right. And it gets us one more, another step closer to our dream and it helps everybody out. And we're really glad to have the people that we have with us. Yes. Uh, Some of you guys may know the podcasts that are already on our network with us. I will read off the names of who we have and who you guys will be hearing from today. Maybe not everybody that is on here, but most of the people. Right, right. So we've teamed up with the Mens Rea podcast, Affirmative Murder podcast, Murder and Such, Hell and High Horror, Corpus Delicti, Trace Evidence, Lus Mortia, The Brothers Commonplace, Killing It, Something's Not Right, Mall, All Crime, No Cattle, Martinis and the Macabre, Based on a True Crime, Nature versus Narcissism, Blood on the Rocks, The Bad Taste Crime Cast, Eye for an Eye, and Obscura. Right on. Yeah, so right we're on. super excited. Everybody um, has put in a little short mini story that mm-hmm. we've compiled. So you're going to hear a lot of different stories from a lot of different people. Right. And we did ours on Kate Webster. Yes. The Dripping Killer. The Dripping Killer. Drip, drip. <laughs> Moisture. <laughs> there's a cool, there's a funny gift that <laughs> says that. Anyways, um, let's see. What are some of our other announcements that we have? things that we need to chat about. I was hoping that I was going to be able to talk about our new Just Killing Time subscription box. Mm-hmm. Should still be here sometime soon. Yeah, it's on its way. Listen, post office. <laughs> you have my needs. <laughs> right. Okay, so besides this awesome launch into a network that we are very excited about, we also have announcements as far as here. Right. Because there has been changes that have happened uh, in our our lives nothing bad it's just summertime right it's yeah I'll just go ahead and say this for for one and all the industry that I work in it tends to revolve around good weather most of the time but it still runs year round with that said I work in the oil and gas industry the oil and gas industry is picking up with it picking up that means I'm um way busy yeah (laughs) like ridiculously busy um yeah we decided let's start a podcast and then work was like oh really yeah you you I'll see your podcast podcast (laughs) right um we are going to continue to try like hell to get an episode a week out to you guys but please know that there might be a week here or a week there that we simply just don't have the time sometimes i'm doing some traveling with work sometimes i'm just running between 14 and 18 hours a day and sometimes it's hard to work around if you're working on like let's say your night shifts Mm -hmm. because then we have to try to squeeze in all family time all any other things that we might have to do as far as responsibilities right in a time period of like two hours sometimes and it's just not always in the cars that's not to say that you guys were not putting anybody last oh no and even if there are times where we may not be able to get like a full length out i i could think about maybe doing a little mini episode sure on something 
something. Sure. That way you guys aren't without. But do know that we are we are learning a new schedule because we also have all kids all the time. Mm-hmm. And learning how to balance that mixed with Quinn being super, super busy. <laughs> right. Plus it being summer and we got to we got to have fun in there, too. Right. So not to say that, hey, we joined a network and now goodbye. <laughs> right. No, we're we're still going to to do everything in our power to move forward at the same rate that we've been moving forward and and get actually more done versus less done. Exactly. Um, all you guys at Patreon, we we thank you more than words can describe. You guys are the best people ever. And we, we promise we haven't forgot. No. We promise we haven't forgot. It's just trying to blend all these schedules into one and, and find harmony. <laughs> Basically, what I'm saying is it's Thanksgiving and I overloaded my plate. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we both did. And we, I don't think either of us were expecting all of the wonderful that has come right and at its pace so we were also kind of like oh crap okay so we're gonna sit down we're gonna do some things we're gonna make things just a little bit more polished mm-hmm. fancy right so with that we will not be here next week but we are hoping that with this episode since we won't be around next week you can check out some of the other awesome podcasts on our network sure absolutely. in the meantime and then we will be back the following week mm-hmm. with another new awesome episode from the FAP. Well, yeah. So with that, please know that's about the biggest change that we're going to have is there might be a week here or a week there that we physically just can't get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, all of us are healthy. All of us are hearty. Everything is good. Oh, yeah. Things are great. Yeah. It's just there's not enough hours in the day sometimes. Yep. <laughs> Yep, out of the 140 or 168 hours in a week. Uh, yep, yep, we have probably literally about 90% of them full. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're making it's too bad that we couldn't do podcast over the road. Oh, god, I would love to be able to do that because that'd be so sweet. <laughs> yeah, I've got hours and hours and hours of my day driving down the road lost in my own head, and that's a dangerous place to be, boys and girls. No, that's a wonderful place to be. What we should do is I should get you an app on the phone and you could just talk into it. <laughs> Quinn's Road Confessions. Oh, God. That would be hilarious. Oh, my goodness. Well, it may uh, not be for everybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I promise you. Yeah. Get me stuck in traffic. And nope, that wouldn't even make for a good bloopers reel. <laughs> it would for me. I might have to do that just for me. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding, kidding. Perfect. Well, I was trying to think of anything else we had left to say. Oh, we do have our merch shop, and those are the link to it specifically is in the show notes, but it's over at T Public. Mm-hmm. If you want any fapping merch to wear out in public, right? I was told that I think that we need to get one that says Fap Landistan. Yeah. So I guess I know what I need to work on as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and uh, join us on all of our socials. Mm hmm. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at the Fat Pod. Mm-hmm. Facebook group at the Fat Lounge. Yes. Patreon, you can find us under our name as well, either under Fat Pod or Fiercely Altered Perspective, if you would like to join. And we do have some things showing up for those in our Patreon that are the higher tiers. We are definitely planning on a goodie bag slash gift basket slash 
whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, yes. And if there is any yelling or screaming that you may hear on this after it is edited and completed, that is the sound of happiness in the other room. Right. <laughs> that is that is majority of the reason why we might have to skip an episode or two every now and again is because, well, mm-hmm. yes, three little hellions that look just out, are just like their mother. <laughs> oh yes, yes, totally. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And act like her too. <laughs> yeah, attitude and everything. So true. So true. But it is summer. So they've been doing this thing where they wake up super early and then they don't want to go to bed until super late, but they want you to run them the whole time. Mm-hmm. So we have been, but that usually means by the time it's it's okay to sit down and everything, I sit down and I fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whoopsie. Oh, oops. But we'll we'll get it all under control. Big massive thank you to Brian and Chris for reaching out and allowing us to be a part of the Murderly Network. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. For they sure, have been for sure. awesome with everything. Yes. And we hope that this is just the best network that we could provide for listeners as well. One-stop shop. Right. For all of your murder needs. <laughs> we ha- It's lovely because it's Murderly Podcasts to die for. Yeah. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to so, be a good time. Sit back. Enjoy as many different podcasts assault your ear holes with amazing stories and Mm -hmm. we will catch you guys in two weeks yep you guys be good behave yourselves and uh thank you so much for everything yes thank you thank you for everything all right enjoy guys see ya well our little contribution to this today is the dripping killer of 1879 yeah (laughs) we're throwing it way back well yeah and we'll flip it and reverse it we're gonna talk about a female you just totally missy elated the shit out of that i did Mm. (laughs) (laughs) i'm okay with it all right (laughs) so without any further ado let's get right into our story we'll find be that way Would you like to start or would you like me to? Tear it up. All right. So Kate Webster was known as a little spitfire from Ireland who naturally loved to drink alcohol and loved to fight. Weird. Her birth name was Catherine Lawler and she was born in 1849 to poor but respectable parents. In her younger years, she was known to pickpocket and she spent her very first time in jail for larceny by age 15 in 1864. A couple years later in 1867, Catherine had stolen enough money to take a boat to Liverpool, and in 1868, when she was 18, she was arrested and sentenced to four years for theft. Kate would also tell people during this time that she had a husband with the last name of Webster, and they had had four children together. However, all of them, including the husband, apparently died in a short period of time, and there was no way to confirm this information if she ever did have a husband and multiple children. Right. Well, and she threw four kids by 18. Yeah. I mean, it's not impossible, but... Yeah, and she was also put into prison multiple times. Right. So, I mean, uh, where... Where do you fit in birthing out four kids in the middle of all of that? <laughs> Unless she, like, threw a litter and had all four at once. Fuck that. I think that would be the only way. <laughs> that or two sets of twins. Oh, I doubt it. I doubt it. Just but given... Anyhow, yeah. Probably solid Bravo Sierra. Yeah, given how this person is, and we'll find out more here in just a second, I'm 
calling bullshit. Uh, mm-hmm. During her time in London, she was a chairwoman, but that didn't pay enough, so she was also a prostitute and moved to Notting Hill in 1873 to be a maid. This is where she said she met the man by the name of Mr. Strong. He too was a robber and they had a wonderful time together. That is, until Kate became pregnant. Once Mr. Strong found out, he left her to fend for herself and the unborn child. In April of 1874, she gave birth to a boy named John W. Webster. The identity of the father still is unknown and Kate herself would uh, name many different men at that time. Yes. Well, I mean, if she was working as a prostitute. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, I mean... It would be it would be hard. <laughs> so, but why would she go by Webster and keep Webster as her son's name? So it also makes me think, well, then did she maybe have a husband and kids or... She's she, also batshit crazy. Yeah, there are, there is that. There is a lot of that. So that's... <laughs> I, mean. I know. I just keep flipping the, flipping the coin. Oh, well, sure. But how many people go by lots and lots of different names that are not this style of person? Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. And that's, that's just the thing. It's like she was known to move in with her employer being a chairwoman or a maid, whatever you want to call it. Right. So she would move in. And while she was there, she would slowly start to steal and sell everything that she could in the home. <laughs> and then once most of the items were stolen, like once it was starting to get apparent that mm. things were missing, right? Kate would bounce and go and find a new employer to go to. And she would often change her name. She would have different names like Webster and Gibbons and Webb and Gibb. She's obviously not very creative. Right. If you do Webb and Gibb off of Webster and Gibbons. Right. Man, that's neither here nor there. I'm just right. being a brat at this point. Best part of it is, is I actually know people with every one of those last names. I know. Me too. <laughs> this was actually like her routine, this moving in by a different name, selling, leaving, whatever. Right. Until in 1875 when she just tried, oh, 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 when she decided to try pickpocketing again and she was caught and had to do 18 months in Wandsworth prison. All right. While Kate was in and out of prison, her son John would be taken care of by another chairwoman named Sarah Kreese, who worked for Mrs. or yeah, Miss Launder in Richmond. After Sarah sustained some sort of illness in January of 1879, Kate stood in place, or yeah, stood in for her, uh, for Mrs. Lauder, waiting for Sarah to make a recovery. Well, it would be Mrs. Lauder to recommend Kate as chairwoman to her friend, Julia Martha Thomas. And that was in January of 1879. Before this time, Julia didn't have many maids to stay around, and she decided to hire Kate on the spot without even meeting her. Mm-hmm. Well, well, <laughs> well, well. Hmm. So, Julia Martha Thomas was known as someone who was insanely hard to get along with. She was often harsh and overcritical, and she was one of those people she also liked to dress well above her status in order to try to show a level of prosperity, or keeping up with the Joneses now, whatever you want to call it. Sure, sure. She lived at two Mayfield cottages, which is also known as two Vine cottages now, Okay. in Park Road in Richmond, and she traveled 
frequently. So she was also twice widowed. She didn't really have any family or friends. She was kind of a bitch. So she would leave and she would travel and nobody knew where she was gone for weeks at a time. She would just up and go. There was no, I'm leaving, I'll be back. She's kind of like a nomad. Sure. I guess. Sure. And so there were many reports that did say that when they knew Julie was around, her and Kate did not get along at all. (laughs) Uh, Weird. Uh, Julia was hypocritical and Kate was rarely found sober. So because Julie would be mad at Kate for being drunk, she would come in behind her and tell her how everything she did as far as cleaning was completely wrong. Okay. So with enough of that, Kate fought back and because she's a fighting Irish woman, Mm-hmm. It kind of scared Julia a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And she saw that mean streak and it got bad enough that she would state to other people that she didn't like to be alone with her own maid. <laughs> and in March, so it was only three months, she fired Kate, but Kate begged her not to be tossed on the streets with her five-year-old son on a weekend. With that, Julia agreed that she could stay until Sunday evening. That Sunday, March 2nd, Julia went to church, uh, but came home to confront Kate and tell her that it was his time. Mm-hmm. And, time for you uh, to go, crazy woman. Right. Well, that, that little conversation didn't go very well, and according to Kate, she was in a drunken rage when she threw Julia down the stairs. Kate also ran down the stairs after Julia and strangled her with her bare hands. After some time, Julia Thomas, or Miss Thomas, as she was known to the community, was dead. Hmm. Kate was not done there. A quote made by Kate during her trial said, I chopped the head from the body with the assistance of a razor, which I used to cut through flesh afterwards. Um, crazy. Uh, pants. Yeah. Well, after the murder, Kate used a meat saw, a razor, and a carving knife to dismember Miss Thomas. Even she was disgusted at the amount of blood. Kate disemboweled Julia and burned the organs and guts in er, in the fireplace. She boiled her body so it couldn't be identified. She put the head and a foot into a Gladstone bag, dressed up in Julia's clothes, and then disposed of the foot in a manure heap over in Twickenham, then to the the hole-in-the-wall pub to drink. So after her night of drinking, it would take her days to clean up the mess left behind, and she also needed to dispose of the rest of her body. Okay. So she put all of that she could into the, a wooden box, and the things that couldn't fit was that foot and that head that she put in the bag. Right. And disappeared with. So with this wooden box, she can't keep it in the house, so she decides to pay a visit to an old friend named Henry Porter. No, that's not Harry Potter with the speech impediment. <laughs> it really is Henry Porter. <laughs> This was an old neighbor who she hadn't seen in many years. So when she met, she told him that she had married and her name was now Mrs. Thomas. Hmm. Hmm. She also said that she had inherited a home from her aunt who passed away over in Richmond. Hmm. And that she needed help moving a box from the home to a train station. But she didn't want anything in this home that she inherited. So she wanted to sell everything on the inside if Henry knew of anybody who might be interested. So he said that she should talk to a man named John Church for all of the stuff being bought on the inside of the house. And as far as moving the box, his son, Robert, would help her move. Okay. From there, Kate and Robert went to move the wooden box. But on the way, Kate tossed the box over the bridge into the water below. Since she didn't seem bothered by it, Robert never 
thought anything, and, well, they just went about their ways. The very next morning, however, a coal porter spotted the box and notified police when he discovered that the box contained a female torso. It had been completely disemboweled, and the two legs were wrapped in brown paper. Police were quickly able to connect the foot that they had found recently in a nearby area. The only problem was, without a head, they had no clue who it was. Well, they buried the remains in Barnes Cemetery on March 19th and labeled the death as the Barnes Mystery or the Richmond's Murder. It wasn't uncommon for the real Miss Thomas to be gone for weeks or months, and so nobody really thought about it for a while. Mm-mm. You know, it's... Nobody thought that it could be her. Right. Yeah. You know, it, whatever. Exactly. So, for 16 days, Kate lived as Julia. She slept in her bed, she wore all of her clothing and jewelry, and she started selling the belongings that Kate didn't want. And she had hired John Church to come on March 18th. And in the meantime, she sold everything else up to and including the gold fillings that were in Julia's teeth, Mm. which Kate plucked out and sold to the local pawnbrokers. (laughs) That is just crazy. All right. Uh, uh, Some neighbors did grow suspicious after they kept seeing Kate around, but they never saw Julia. Well, and I get it, but here's one of my questions on that is Mm -hmm. she was the maid, right? Right. So she would be there. Yeah. I mean, in my little pea brain, that's if you're paying someone to watch your house and take care of your house, wouldn't you want them to also be there while you're gone for weeks, months, whatever? Right. But eh. whatever. So I'm I'm thinking that it was the noticeable change in her dress, in her styles. In Yeah, it would have to be something like that. Or maybe because she had went to church earlier that day, they knew she was around and then she wasn't. But again, they don't. Right. So I'm, I'm going to go with you and assume that maybe there was a noticeable change in Kate, which made people get suspicious. Or maybe the neighbors were just being nosy. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I yeah. don't know. So, on March 18th of 1879, the moving vans that were bought by John Church arrive at Mrs. Thomas's house to pick up the furniture. But when one of the neighbors started to come outside, Kate was already planning her escape with her son. The neighbor, a Miss Ives, walked over to the men who were moving the furniture and asked, who hired you? And they pointed over at Kate, but called her Miss Thomas. But by this point, Kate was already almost onto that train station. Right. That's when they realized that she was an imposter. So with that, John Church called the authorities and when police showed up to Mrs. Thomas's home, they found quite a bit of evidence. Oh, sure. Inside the home, police would find that the copper laundry chute vessel was clogged with human fat. There was charred finger bones in the hearth and blood stains everywhere. She was obviously a shitty maid. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> they made the connection that this had to be the same woman that they had found in the river, but despite their best efforts, they couldn't find Julia's head. The chase was on to find Kate, and in the home they would find a letter from her that uh, had her home address back in Ireland. Police put out a wanted notice for Kate and her five-year-old son. The mother and son fled back to their uncle's farm in Ireland. It was there that they were arrested on March 29th, still wearing Julia's clothing. They would bring her back to London, where she would stand trial 
trial at Old Bailey, and the trial would last for six days. But as Kate was being transported from Kingstown near Dublin, people were gathering to come and see who she was because mm-hmm. news was being let out about not only her crimes of theft, both in Ireland and in England, but with this suspected of murdering and dismembering her employer. Right. She would become known as history's most despised criminals, one of them. People kept gathering each time she landed at a certain place. Sure. Unfortunately for her son, John, Kate's uncle refused to keep him. So without knowing who his father was and given where his mom was going, the young boy was sent to a local workhouse until an industrial school could take him away. So at the beginning of trial, Kate tried to plead not guilty to murder and theft. Kate would try to blame the murder on John Church, but since he had a solid alibi, and as we know, he's completely innocent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> it didn't work. Kate then blamed Henry Porter, again, not Harry Potter. <laughs> no. But the story follows the same as John Church's. Henry also had a solid alibi. Right, and we know <laughs> that it definitely wasn't him either. Right. That's crazy woman. Right. Well, the jury found Kate guilty of murder, and on March 30th, 1879, uh, all of a sudden she She's claiming that she's pregnant. With this news, they felt that they must check to see if they if she really was with child or not. And uh, if she was, they'd have to postpone her death until after the baby was born. So they took a surgeon and 12 women and they swore them in. Well, she wasn't pregnant. No, she's full of shit, maybe. <laughs> yeah, she's feeding <laughs> a big old steamy pile. They decided that... Uh, it's time. The night before her hanging, she made a full confession to Father McHenry, except for the location of Julia's head. And just like to, er, in times now, it's not like, oh, you're guilty. Tomorrow you die. Right, right. So that next day after she had confessed, it was July 29th of 1879. They used the long drop method of hanging so that when you fall, it's supposed to snap your neck. Right. It's like and the you don't exact... suffocate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was also the only woman hung at water. Wadsworth Prison and placed in an unmarked grave labeled number three. Eventually, they did find Julia's head, but it wouldn't be until 2010 hmm. when David Attenborough, which uh, super famous over in England, and even if you don't know who he is by the name, you've heard his voice. Yeah, before. you know the voice. He does usually all of the like Animal Planet or BBC stuff, like. Anytime I was learning about something, it's usually this guy's voice that narrated it. Right. Right. So huge guy. Uh, He lived over in this same area and he was excavating the back part of the old pub, the hole in the wall that closed in 2007. His house is right next to it and it was kind of like his garden area. So when they were doing that, they found a skull without any teeth. And after sending it off to testing, they determined that the head was actually Julia Martha Thomas. Hmm. Because Kate, maybe the same night she got rid of the foot, she got rid of her head in the back of the pub area. Mm-hmm. But when they tested it, the skull dated between 1650 and 1880. And it also had low collagen levels and fracture marks. The cause of death from the skull was determined to be a head injury and asphyxiation, which goes hand
hand in hand with how Julia was murdered. Right. And the fractures are consistent with a fall. Weird. Right. And the low collagen can be explained as being consistent with boiling. So. All right. They finally found her head 130 years later. Ta-da. So you guys have probably been wondering why Kate Webster earned the name The Dripping Killer. Well, (laughs) here you go. The story says she tried to sell the fat drippings to a local restaurant, but they weren't in need of the drippings. So instead, she fed the drippings to a group of boys who supposedly ate two bowls full without any knowledge of what or who they were actually eating. Hmm. So that is how she earned her nickname. She fed. Yeah. Miss Thomas to people. Mm -hmm. Now, they did say, there is a disclaimer, that that's not sure if that's true or not. However, you give the level of crazy. Oh, yeah. I would not put it above her. No. Not at all. Anything to get some extra cash? I'm sure she would have. If she's going to pluck teeth out of a skull. Yeah, if if she's going to pluck fillings out of teeth to sell at a pawn shop. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to go with, she did. She did. Why? Because I believe in cannibalism today. Fair enough. And that's our story. (laughs) So, hey, thanks for taking your time to listen, and we appreciate it. Goodbye, everybody. See ya. This is Shay and Aaron from All Crime No Cattle. And just to let you know, we're a conversational podcast all about crime here in the great state of Texas. We put out episodes weekly and we trade hosting duties. So one week you'll hear Aaron's case that she's been researching. And the next week I'll present my case. If you've never heard our show before, welcome. So far, we've covered small cases like the lynching of Alan Brooks in downtown Dallas and the death of Jennifer Holland, a college student from Bryan, Texas, as well as bigger cases such as the Texas Tower Sniper and Texas-based serial killers Robert Ben Rhodes and Kenneth Allen McDuff. And we always end each episode with a good news story to brighten your day after you listen to some in-depth, deep, true crime, terrible stuff. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into the case that we're going to cover today. What case are we talking about, Aaron? Well, I'm actually very pleased to have the opportunity to cover this case because if you're new to our show, each of our episodes is usually about an hour to an hour and a half long. We try to really delve into research and present a full picture of the story. But unfortunately, there's very little information about this case available, certainly not enough to fill a regular episode for us. So when we decided to do this mini episode thing for the Murderly Network, I realized that this was the perfect case to cover. This is the story of the murders of the Cooper Allen family from Lubbock, Texas in 2004. Lubbock is in northwest Texas. It's kind of smack dab at the southern edge of the Texas panhandle. It has a population of about 250,000 today. It was about 210,000 back in 2004 when this crime happened. And it's most known for being where Texas Tech University was founded back in 1923. Yeah, guns up. 
45-year-old Tammy Cooper had grown up here in Lubbock with her family, but after her parents split up, Tammy and her mother Mary moved to the Dallas area, Dallas being about a five-hour drive due east of Lubbock. After Tammy had grown up and had children of her own, she kind of missed her hometown and thought it was a really nice place for a kid to grow up. So in 2003, Tammy packed her family up and moved back out to Lubbock in search for something new and a better life for her three kids. Her eldest child was an 11-year-old girl named Mahogany Jasmine Allen, and she also had two 9-year-old twin boys, Cadiz and Kashim Allen. And these kids are the cutest things you've ever seen. So obviously, Tammy had her hand full with oh, two yeah. twin boys and uh, an 11-year-old girl. That sounds like more than a handful. Yeah. Tammy was described by family as friendly and outgoing, and the kids were said to be great kids, happy, respectful, and smart. As far as the father of the children, it's not clear what kind of relationship either Tammy or the kids had with him, but I do know that Tammy was no longer with the father once she moved out to Lubbock. About six months after moving to Lubbock, Tammy and the kids moved into an apartment on the 500 block of North MLK Junior Boulevard in the northeast part of town. Now, this place is described as an apartment in all of the research that's out there, but there are pictures of it online that we can post on our social media as we always do. And it's really a freestanding single story home. And I'm thinking that it's actually a duplex, mm -hmm. not what you would typically think of when you think of an apartment. Sure. So just keep that in mind. At around 7.30 a.m. on Monday, October 25th, 2004, one of Tammy's friends arrived at the home to take the kids to school. Apparently, this was an arrangement that they had because Tammy had to be at work early. So this friend had offered to help out by giving the kids rides to school each morning. The friend entered the home after not getting a response at the door and made the grisly discovery that Tammy, Mahogany, Cadiz, and Kashim had all been brutally murdered. That's a horrible thing to walk into. Yeah. Now, not much has been released to the public in regards to the state of the household or descriptions of the crime scene once law enforcement were called in. But back in 2016, Lubbock police released a statement calling this, quote, one of Lubbock's most violent and gruesome murders. From the few details that have been reported, it seems as if the crime scene spanned more than one room of the apartment, that bodies were found in multiple rooms of the home, and that the entire apartment was in shambles, showing that a huge struggle had happened there. More than one weapon was used, as both mother and children are described as having suffered from different injuries, including stab wounds and blunt force trauma injuries from being beaten. Investigators also have suggested that it was clear that Tammy fought hard against the attacker or attackers to protect her children, and this is something that I'll get back to a little bit later. Investigators immediately began piecing together what happened to the Cooper Allen family in the days and hours leading up to their deaths. But this was a little difficult in this case. After all, Tammy had just moved back to Lubbock about a year before and had been living in this apartment only about six months. So... They were new to the area. They didn't have established contacts or schedules or anything. So it was hard to really figure out what was the norm for this family. But soon, investigators found information that may point directly at the still unknown murderer. The evening before the bodies were discovered, at about 1030 at night, Tammy was on the phone with a friend. The friend reported that someone knocked on Tammy's door. It's not exactly clear who, but someone, either Tammy herself or one of her children, answered the door. And the friend on the phone reported hearing a man's voice, which she described as very deep. Upon seeing the man, Tammy reportedly asked him, how did you find me? Yeah, that's not typical. That's pretty suspicious. Yeah, exactly. 
So this man began telling Tammy to get off the phone because he needed to talk to her. According to the friend on the phone, the man sounded agitated and very pushy. Worried, the friend asked Tammy who this man was, and Tammy told her, his name is Butch. He's not from around here. It's clear that Tammy knew this man, Butch, and although she didn't cry out or ask her friend to call the police or anything like that, she actually seemed rather calm, according to Tammy's friend. But it was clear that she didn't seem terribly happy to see the man at the door. Tammy got off the phone with her friend, and that was the last known time anyone spoke to Tammy alive. Now, it's also reported in some articles that Tammy also included one final detail, that the man at her door was black. However, this detail isn't reported in all sources about this case. And since it's an important detail in the suspect's description, that's not officially reported everywhere. I do want to note that I'm not 100% sure that it's a fact that Tammy said this just based on all the research available at this time. So let's break down what little we know from this reported phone call and some of the other details of the case. The very first thing Tammy said to the man was, how did you find me? And then afterward mentioned to her that this man she called Butch wasn't from around here. Now, remember, Tammy had just moved from Dallas to Lubbock. And from what's suggested in some of the articles out there, the move was rather abrupt. Is it possible that Tammy had been in some kind of trouble, either by a stalker or a man that she had been in a relationship with who had grown violent? And that's what prompted her move to Lubbock? Yeah, it kind of sounds like she's trying to get out of a bad situation. It, I mean, it's definitely possible. After all, there was no forced entry to the home. And nothing was obviously taken from the home. So this man overheard on the phone almost certainly was involved with the deaths of Tammy, Mahogany, Cadiz, and Kashim. And the fact that four people, including children, were murdered in such a violent manner suggests that this was a personal attack. And it's doubtful the family had lived in Lubbock long enough to become targets of some crazed killer. It makes more sense that this was a longer standing relationship that Tammy had had with this own unknown person, at least to me. What do you think about that? I agree. Just the nature of the crime, the phone call, it sounds like it's somebody she knew and that it was personal. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, a lot of people have pointed to the fact, well, she didn't cry out on the phone. She didn't sound scared or anything. But I think that we also have to realize that she was she had her children with her and she was on the phone with somebody. And so I think it's possible that even if she was frightened of this person, She might have been hiding those responses to keep her kids calm, to to not freak out the person on the phone. I mean, I think there's a lot of explanations. And obviously, she she wouldn't have known what this person was about to do. Yeah, I bet the gears were already turning in her head, thinking about, like, how am I going to defuse the situation? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We also know from the little descriptions of the state of the crime scene that a violent struggle happened inside the home. The Dallas Morning News reported that furniture and lamps were overturned throughout the apartment. And it's possible that the killer may have been injured. That comes directly from the Dallas Morning News. So this is complete speculation on my part. But I wonder if investigators have the DNA of the attacker. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. And I'm saying that from the various reports made that Tammy fought this person hard, but also because of one other detail, the fact that multiple weapons were used, including a knife that seemingly had been taken from the home's kitchen. Now, in a lot of knife attacks that we see, a lot of assailants actually end up cutting themselves with a knife 
because uh, the knife handle gets so coated in blood that be- it becomes slippery and they mm-hmm. actually injure themselves. And so let's remember, this was an attack on four people. There would have been a lot of blood. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that, that's one thing that makes me think that that's a possibility. Also, if she fought so hard, there might be DNA under her fingernails. Ah, that was going to be my second ah. point. Very good. Yeah, especially on a woman's fingernails. Our Women's fingernails typically are a little bit longer than men. So I think you could definitely make that argument. If she fought him as hard as it sounds like from what some of the investigators have said, I wonder if there's some DNA under her fingernails. I wonder if she got a piece of him. So this is totally conjecture on my part, but I think it's possible we may have the murderer's DNA at the residence, but that investigators have so far been unable to locate this man, Tammy, called Butch. As far as Butch's identity and whereabouts, Lieutenant John Hayes with the Lubbock Police Department has said, quote, We believe we have a pretty strong idea of who it is, who that nickname relates to, and it's a case of locating him now that many years later, they could be anywhere. It's been almost 14 years since the murder of the Cooper Allen family, but investigators do not discount this case as a cold case, even though there haven't been any arrests. There have been articles and things published online as recent as October of 2017. So, you know, it's out there. The media is still reporting about this case. Nobody's forgotten about it. And in fact, there are still detectives assigned to this case and they are still working leads. So, as always, we will be putting up pictures of Tammy, Mahogany, Cadiz, and Kashim on all of our social media. And I'll ask that, especially if you've lived in the Lubbock or DFW area for a while, that you think of this story and take a look at these pictures. Because we need to try to find where this man is and we need to get that information to the authorities. If this man was around Tammy's age, which was 45 years old at the time of her death... He would now be in his late 50s or early 60s. His name is either Butch or that is a nickname he currently or used to go by. He might be known for a violent temper or problems with domestic violence. He has a deep voice and he either still lives or used to live in North Texas. And then let's remember that other detail that has been reported in in a few different sources that this person named Butch might have been African-American. Anyone with any information on this case is asked to please call the Lubbock Police Department crime line at 806-741-1000. And we will put that information again on our social media and in the show notes as well. Callers can remain anonymous and they also may be eligible for a cash reward that is still available for any information relating to this case. Awesome. Yeah, that's everybody should pay attention and do their best to to provide any information that can catch this terrible individual. Yeah. I mean, they still talk about it because it this is Lubbock. It's not a very big town. I got a Lubbock friend that's going to bash me for this, but there's a lot of tumbleweeds that that roll. There's a great migration of the tumbleweeds. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's basically Texas Tech. Yeah. And then that's basically it out there. It's a big part of the town. And, you know, a quadruple homicide, especially one involving children, is so out of the ordinary, especially, I think, for a town like Lubbock. And so um, it's just so devastating that we're now 14 years, almost 14 years after the deaths of the Cooper Allen family. And we still we don't have results. But it's so frustrating as well, because we have this description of this man. Mm -hmm. We know that this person who was at her door is most likely responsible for her death. It's really weird to think that he just like showed up and have a conversation left and then somebody else came and killed the entire family. And now that we can't locate him either, he's probably moved somewhere, changed his name. And that's what it seems like is that the, the police 
know maybe who this person was in relation to Tammy, but that they just can't find him. And, mm-hmm. and again, that's just going on what I've kind of pieced together from what investigators have, have said. Well, now the power is in your hands, podcast listener. Crime sleuth, armchair detective. Keep this story in the front of the news. Keep yeah. getting people to put articles about it. Let's solve this. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it alive because this person is obviously a very, very violent criminal and he needs to be punished and to make sure that he can't do anything like this again. Yeah. All right. Well, that's everything for this case. I know it was a short one, but that was kind of the point. Again, that's pretty much it as far as the details of this case go. There's not a lot of information out there. I hope you guys found this case interesting. We really want to keep the Cooper Allen family alive and keep people invested and interested in this case. So hopefully it is solved. We want to express our pleasure in joining the Murder Lead Network. It's, yeah. We're very excited. We hope that you were, will be excited. I think there's lots of good things for both podcasters and listeners. And hopefully just better and better things will be coming out on the pipeline soon. Yeah, make sure to check out the other podcasts on the network. We're in really good company. There's oh, some yeah, amazing absolutely. podcasts here. All right, that's it from us. As we say on this podcast at the end, crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Bye. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And we co-host Based on a True Crime, a podcast where we talk about some really awesome movies and the really terrible true stories that they're based on. Yes. 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 And we are so excited to be joining the Murderly Network. Yeah, we are. That's uh, super, super cool. We're, we're, that's, that's exciting. Yeah, you know, we're we're joining this network with some of my personal favorite podcasts, some podcasts that, you know, I've been listening to since they started out, so it's just it's an honor and a privilege and you know, we hope that if you're listening to one of those podcasts right now, you might come over and and check us out because we might just be up your alley or hiding in the alley. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh wait, no. And uh we wanted to to lure you over with a cool story. So, one of my personal favorite movies, you know, I'm I'm a bit of a uh, a musical nerd and I love the movie Chicago. And I saw it for the, I think the first time when we screened it uh, for our episode. Yes. I might have been singing along and uh, being a little bit annoying, but oh no, never. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I, I personally was actually pretty surprised when I found out that the story of Chicago was inspired by a real story. And it was actually the play Chicago was written by Maureen Dallas Watkins. She was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune and she wrote stories while she was a journalist about Chicago's infamous murderous row. So this was um, this period of time in the 20s where these women were being arrested for murdering their their husbands and their lovers. And there was a lot of public interest in these crimes because a lot of these women were wealthy and beautiful and well-dressed and none of them were convicted, you know, because of this, which is, I think, a phenomenon that we still see nowadays, but it was especially prevalent back in the 1920s. So there are two main characters in Chicago, right? Velma Kelly and Roxy Hart, and they have uh, two analogs. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit about Belva Gartner and uh, David is going to talk a little bit about Beulah Anon. Belva Gartner was a cabaret singer and she was the inspiration for Velma Kelly. She had a reputation after she was arrested for being the uh, most well-dressed woman on death row. On March 11th of 1924, she shot and killed 29-year-old Walter Law. He was an automobile salesman, and he was actually married with a child at the time. But the pair had struck up this relationship, this romance, and they had been going out to gin parties and cabarets together. They'd actually been to a party together that night at the Gingham Cafe. They both drank, and according to Belva, and this should sound familiar to any of you, who have seen and uh, hopefully enjoyed the movie Chicago. She completely blacked out, can't remember a thing, until she woke up in the car with him shot to death next to her. She you know, washed up, but obviously the connection was made because he was in her car outside of her apartment. So she was sent to prison and she uh, was actually interviewed by Maurice Watkins, the writer of Chicago. And she said to her, quote, no woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it because there are always plenty more. Walter was just a kid, 29 and I'm 38. Why should I have worried whether he loved me or whether he left me? (laughs) Nice. Her defense essentially centered around the fact that she could not remember anything. So who knows? Maybe it was murder or maybe... Maybe it was self-defense or maybe some random person came up to the car and shot him and she just was completely blacked out and can't remember. Hmm. So the trial date was initially set for April 21st, but, um, you know, another case stole the headlines. This case of Beulah Anon, so very similar to when Roxy Hart comes into the picture in Chicago and the case was rescheduled for June. Belva's defense waived its opening statement, did not offer a single witness and waived its closing statement. They were just banking on the fact that basically they weren't going to convict this beautiful cabaret singer of murder. The prosecutor tried very hard to prove that Belva was not too drunk to remember, including bringing in people who were at the Gingham Cafe to to testify. But in the end, this this jury, an all-male jury, acquitted Belva of the charges. So she was very pleased. She hugged her lawyers. She exclaimed that she was happy. Walter's widow was there. She said, quote, there's no justice in Illinois. No justice. Walter paid. Why shouldn't she? So after Belva was acquitted, she actually remarried her ex-husband who had paid for all of her lawyers. They did have a rocky relationship, but it seems that the pair stayed together until William died in 1948. And Belva lived the rest of her days in in Pasadena, California, where she died in 1965 when she was 80 years old. Wow, long life. Yeah, probably should have been in jail, but what can you do? Yeah. Well, the second case in this story really started off on April 3rd, 1924. It was when 23-year-old Beulah May Anon shot her lover, Harry Kalstep, in her bedroom during a drunken argument. She ended up insisting to the authorities that Harry was an intruder and that she killed him in self-defense in order to protect her honor. Later on, she sobered up and she did end up confessing that she killed him because he had threatened to leave her. 
She quickly gained a reputation as the prettiest woman ever accused of murder in Chicago. She was married to Albert Anon, who was a mechanic. They'd been married for four years, and she had a seven-year-old son from a previous marriage who lived with his father's family in Kentucky. She had started out working as a bookkeeper at Tenant's Model Laundry, and that was where she met Harry, whom she worked with. They both liked booze together, so they would drink together in her apartment while her husband was away. And that's really what was happening on April 3rd when the the crime happened. There was uh, a 38 caliber revolver sitting on the bed, which was her husband Albert's. The defense had said that both Beulah and Harry went for the gun at the same time, and Beulah grabbed it first and shot Harry. That was one of David's favorite songs in the movie, right? Yep. yep. Uh, the, the gun, the gun, the yes. gun, the gun. <laughs> oh, yes. They both reach for the gun for the gun. Yeah. It's very well done with puppeteers and all that. but And all yeah. that jazz. <laughs> and all that jazz <laughs> but yeah it's it's pretty remarkably close to the movie with you know her her insisting to both reach for the gun with the fact that she insisted that he was an intruder at first before she finally fessed up to the affair yeah so they they made it to the station and Beulah confessed and said that she was having an affair with Harry Albert kind of stood up and was like you're honorable you know you weren't clearly weren't cheating on this guy right but then you know once once he found that out he said um I've been a sucker that's all I I've worked 10, 12, 14 hours a day and took home every cent of my money. We bought our furniture for the little apartment on time and it was all paid off but $100. I thought she was happy. I didn't know. And you know, he ended up standing by her through the entire trial despite what went down. Yep. And that's that's also uh, the case in the movie. And uh, you know, there's there's a moment where she claims that she was pregnant and uh, you know, Harry was really mad and that's why he went to the gun. She decided to kill him in self-defense for that. You know, she offered a, a really convincing story um, as well of Harry getting drunk drunk and refusing to leave the apartment. She also said that he tried to get her to go to the bedroom with him and you know that's when she told him about being pregnant and then he didn't believe her, got angry, threatened to call her husband and then said he would come to the apartment and shoot them both. So that's when Harry went to the bedroom and searched the gun. Beulah said she got it first and then um, she said that he kept going after her and that's when she shot him. Then she also denied ever being intimate with Harry so a lot of kind of back and forth a lot of different stories here which are kind of tough to track yeah and you have to wonder whether you know she she could have just not said anything like Belva Gartner and still gotten acquitted which spoiler alert (laughs) she got acquitted (laughs) yeah her lawyer William Scott Stewart said that both previous confessions were coerced by the police he framed the confrontation between Beulah and Harry as being that of this frail little girl struggling with a drunken butte the prosecutor on the other hand told the jury that they were going to need to decide whether they were going to permit a woman to commit a crime and let her go because she was beautiful. They needed to decide whether they wanted to let another beautiful woman go and say, I got away with it. So, you know, these these two crimes were, you know, kind of similar in a lot of ways in terms of how juries perceived both women. There's kind of cautioning the jury to not be swayed by one's appearance. And of course, maybe they were swayed. Maybe the prosecution's argument just wasn't very strong. But either way, on May 24th, Beulah was was acquitted of uh, murder charges. But as things happened quickly in the news cycle, uh, the headline was overshadowed by the kidnapping of Bobby Franks. And it eventually ties into a case that we've covered, which was the murder of Bobby Franks by Leopold and Lope. The next day, Beulah announced that she was going to leave her husband because he was, quote, too slow. In the end, she didn't divorce him until 1926. And Beulah ended up marrying two more times before she passed away in 1928 due to tuberculosis. Uh, A sad end for someone who probably murdered this dude. Yep. Yeah. It's still sad in though. Yeah. 
well, you know, that's that's kind of our introduction. I hope you, you listeners got a, a feel of, of our style. And hopefully if you, like me, are a true crime lover or like David, are a, a movie lover, you will check out our podcast based on a true crime. You can find us on any of your favorite podcatchers. You could also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at True Crime Based. We're on Instagram at Based on a True Crime. We're on Facebook. Our page is Based on a True Crime Podcast and our discussion group where we always have a ton of fun talking about movies and different cases. Uh, it's called Cult of Based on a True Crime. Uh, we we really hope that you will uh, come check us out and check out everyone else on the Murderly Network. Hello, and welcome to a mini-sode for Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today we're going to be talking about Adele Antonio Di Cali. Yeah, this is just a quick little episode for the launch of the Murderly Network, which I'm super excited to be a part of, and there's going to be some other really great shows around there, so you should definitely go check them out. But for now, we'll just get straight into it, and let's talk about Adele Antonio Di Cali. So, Adele Antonio de Cali was born in Pelotas in Brazil on February 8, 1966, and was known in Brazil as Father Baloeiro, or Padre de Balo, which translates to balloon priest from Portuguese. And he was a Brazilian Catholic priest who was known for his work in human rights, and was also an experienced skydiver with another interesting hobby which I'll get into in a bit, because this hobby led to his untimely demise. So, we're going to jump a bit to 2006. So Dakali would have been about 40 years old, where he gained a lot of recognition for denouncing human rights violations in Paranagua, Brazil, against agents of the municipal guard, who were accused of transporting beggars out of the city and torturing them. Now, this led to the Human Rights Commission of the Brazilian Bar Association, issue a record containing copies of reports and various requests that were forwarded to, to authorities, requesting action on allegations that residents of the city were suffering inhuman acts practiced by agents of the, of the municipality. Uh, investigations about this began in March of the year, after the Cali made a complaint, also saying that he'd received a lot of anonymous threats intimidating him. But he was quoted as saying, The State Department of Public Security offered me police protection, but my protection comes from God, for the honesty and transparency that we are giving to the case. So he delivered documents with evidence of these crimes to the, to the Secretary of Public Security, which included a photo of a homeless man who had been beaten to death by a municipal guard. Uh, his denunciations uh, resulted in seven municipal guard agents and the municipal security secretary of Paranagua to be arrested. But anyway, we're here for his last year or so. We're going to talk about the color's nickname of the balloon priest. Now this is because on the 30th of January 2008, the Kali uh, made his first attempt at cluster ballooning, where he essentially st strapped himself to a chair which was attached to 600 balloons, and used this to fly for four hours from Ampere Parana, Brazil, to San Antonio in Argentina, uh, which, was a to which was a total distance of about 25 kilometers. Uh, reaching heights of about 5,300 meters. 
which is about 17,500 feet. Now, a couple months later, in April, he'd make his second attempt uh, in a chair attached to a thousand balloons. An attempt to raise money to fund a spiritual rest stop for truckers in Paranagua and also break the 19-hour flight record for cluster ballooning. And he was equipped with a parachute, helmet, waterproof overalls, a GPS device, a mobile phone, a satellite phone, a flotation device chair, an aluminium thermal flight suit, and at least five days of food and drinking water. And his training included jungle survival and mountain climbing courses. However, his training didn't include instruction for using his GPS, which would later be a rather large issue, to say the least. So at the time of departure, the weather was overcast and raining, but the priest said that the clouds were low and that he'd soon pass through them. However, shortly after taking off, he would disappear. So, in his chair attached to a thousand balloons, Nikali was able to reach a height of approximately 19,700 feet or 6,000 meters before he lost contact with authorities. He left Paranagua and Piranha to learn Duradas Mata Grande de Sol, but due to strong winds, he was blown off course to, out to sea and was estimated to have fallen about 40 kilometers off the coast in San Francisco de Sol. Uh, but before losing contact, he was able to say that he had to land at the sea because he was losing height, and that if someone could explain how to use his GPS, he could relay his position to rescuers. And he was last known to have used his phone and GPS on Sunday at 8.45pm to let the Navy know his position. Yeah, after losing contact, a search was set out, but to no avail, unfortunately. Two days after the flight, a fire department commander, uh, familiar with the situation, put the priest's chances of being alive at 80%. And the search continued, though it first started dying off on April 29, when the Brazilian Navy called off the ocean search, saying that the chances of finding Dekali alive in the ocean were very remote after 135 hours of searching, though several private fishing boats were still out looking for Dekali. They still had fire department rescue teams looking for the priest in the forested coastal mountains and stuff and places like that um, but unfortunately nothing really came of it. This on the 4th of July 2008 the lower half of a body was found on by an offshore oil rig support vessel floating out on the sea about 100 kilometers from Mackay and it was identified by the clothing that was similar to the priests at the time of departure though there would be rumors of it being other people that were lost out at sea including the pilot of a helicopter that had, that had been downed so DNA samples were taken from the priest's brother and compared, and would finally confirm that the body would belong to Adelaide Akali, and the priest had finally been found out to sea. This would finally bring the search to rest. But yeah, so, that was a mini-sode for Blood on the Rocks. I'm sure you'll hear plenty of other ones around the launch of Medley. Um, I hope you enjoyed that, and we will, yeah, and hopefully... I'll hear from you in the future, or the other way around. <laughs> I'll see you soon.
Hey everyone, it's Jen. And this is Lindsay. And we are Corpus Delicti. If true crime is your thing, it's ours too. We bring a dash of lightheartedness and a hint of southern charm. We cover a variety of cases, some you probably have never heard, as well as some high-profile and historical cases. We release new episodes every Tuesday. We just wrapped up a series of cold cases called Cold Case Dossier, as well as one about cruise ship deaths and disappearances, which was called Dark Waters. We would love for you to join us as we start our new series on prison escapes, but until then, we're going to fill you in on a story from our home state of Alabama about Amy Bishop. All right, so let's get into the details a little bit about Amy. She was born on April 24th, 1965. She was a mother to four little munchkins. She earned her PhD in genetics at Harvard University. So you know girl was smart. She became an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. First of all, PhD in genetics is big stuff, but this is all at Harvard. So obviously that's very impressive. She's very smart. She ended up joining as the assistant professor at University of Alabama Huntsville in the Department of Biological Sciences, and she was in charge of teaching five courses there. Now, we're from Birmingham, Alabama, so this all took place about an hour north of us. She had written three unpublished novels, one of which featured a female scientist looking for a cure of a pandemic virus who also battled depression due to a fear of not earning tenure. Yeah, so she's got this character in a book who we will learn actually quite resembles herself. So people described Amy Bishop as obviously very, very smart, very bright, but she was quite abrasive, and she had this incessant need for people's attention and praise. She felt like everybody should know that she was a doctor and all these great things she did and these studies she published. She, she wanted all the accolades from that. And she was also known for erratic behavior and co-workers, they reported that during meetings she would say stuff that was just completely off the wall and, as they say, just, just crazy stuff. Now, you can imagine, like, this behavior does not translate well into a classroom. She was not popular by any means with the students, and several of them actually filed complaints saying that, one, she wasn't a good instructor, and generally there were some creepy, creepy vibes going on in the classroom. They're pretty much spot on. So in March of 2009, Amy Bishop received confirmation that she would not receive tenure at the school. And that spring of 2010 would end her time at the school. So she was not getting tenure. All of that anxiety came true. So this was a result of a long battle where Amy maintained she was qualified for it due to the papers she had published. She even hired attorney, and the school upheld its decision and had been giving multiple notices of the requirements. So to be tenured, to have a place at the school permanently, you have to keep so many things, your research, you have to publish, you have to be able to to keep up, plus do your classwork. And she wasn't able to. They reminded her several times. Yeah, so like Jen said, her whole career kind of rode on this. She wanted to have a permanent place at this school, and you can see how that translated into that book that she wrote. And she even went as far as to file a gender discrimination complaint. And the school said, hey, look, you you've, you knew that you had to publish these papers in time, and you didn't, so I'm sorry. So on February 12, 2010, Amy conducted her classes as usual. Everything was business as usual. She walked in. She dropped her lunch off in the cafeteria. Nothing was out of the ordinary for her. 
And then after her classes, the biology department held a meeting with 12 staff members, and they're all sitting in there talking about upcoming exams, what everything's going to look like. And out of nowhere, just before 4 p.m., it was about 30 minutes into the meeting, Amy stands up and she pulls out a 9mm handgun. Starting with the person sitting closest to her, she went around the room and pulled the trigger, shooting colleagues in the head. After several rounds, her gun became jammed and she was visibly mad. Other colleagues tried to step in at this point and push her out of the room and was able to barricade the door, saving the rest of their lives. In the end, three members lost their lives and three more were injured. I watched a YouTube video about this and one of her good friends who she got along with really well was in there and that's who she was pointing the gun at when it jammed. Oh my gosh. And she crawled out of the room. She was crawling out of the room and Amy followed her and when the gun jammed, she had enough sense to jump up real quick and run back in the room while Amy was still out and that's how they were able to barricade the door. And at that point, Amy was like, well, it's over. So she calls her husband to pick her up, didn't tell him what had happened, acted like everything was perfectly normal and said, hey, come pick me up and we can go out to date night like we planned. You just shot three people and you're going on a date night. Yep. Your butt's going to jail. Yep. Among the three who were killed, it consisted of the chairman of the biology department and two biology professors. And then those injured were two biology professors and a staff assistant. The police were called, and she was arrested outside of the building where she couldn't believe what had just happened. She commented, it didn't happen. There's no way they're still alive. Some people said that she seemed very out of it after, so they didn't know if it was honestly like some sort of break that happened or if she was just saying it. But after the incident, several coworkers described that they were legitimately nervous that she may have booby-trapped the building with a herpes bomb because apparently part of what she did there was she worked with the herpes virus and in her story the one about the pandemic virus that this professor who resembled her so much was trying to stop the spread of resembled herpes a lot and so they they were nervous and for with her being known for being weird, they were concerned. But luckily, nothing of that sort was ever found. So investigators came in, and there were some really interesting things that they found in her history. So back in 86, Amy was just 21 years old at the time. She fatally shot her brother, Seth. Now, two shots were fired from a shotgun, one on the wall, and one into her brother's chest. So it was deemed accidental. Ironically, Judy Bishop was a good friend of the police chief at the time, and this really outraged the entire community because how she did two shots, right. one into the wall, one into her brother. That's not how accidental. Was this ac- no, yeah. an accident's one, not a double tap. Well, and to make matters worse, all the files that went along with this just magically disappeared, and when the shooting happened, they reinvestigated this old case and found the old missing files. And the files showed that later that same day after the shooting, Amy was seen at a car dealership with the same gun pointing it at two people. And she was trying to demand a car to ride in. And she claimed she was being chased by a dangerous husband and it was self-defense. I mean, she she wasn't married at this time. So in March of 2010, she was officially also charged with the first degree murder of her brother, 
which is crazy, but that's not all. So they discovered that Amy and her husband had been suspects in a letter bombing case of 1993. The professor and the physician at Harvard received two pipe bombs in the mail, but they didn't detonate. So thank God for that. And it turns out that Amy had spoken to several people about being nervous that she would be getting a bad rating for him. She stepped down working for him because she didn't feel she could meet his standards. She was, noticeably, she was very upset. She ended up uh, stepping down from that position because she was about to have a nervous breakdown. Her husband was reported in saying to her friends that he wanted to shoot, stab, or strangle him, but there was no evidence. So all of this remains unsolved. So she was losing it way before, you know, this the shootout in Huntsville. So you've got the shootout in Huntsville. You've got the death of her brother. You've got her as a suspect in a letter bombing case. But that's still not it. So in 2002, Amy and her family are at IHOP. And another restaurant guest received the last booster seat in the restaurant. And apparently that made Amy upset. She had her kids with her. And she wanted a booster seat for her kid. So she marched over to the guest. She demanded the seat. And... Of course, the guest refused because she's like, I mean, I need it too. So what does one do? Amy punched her in the head while screaming, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. And she ended up pleading guilty to a misdemeanor assault and received probation for that. So these are several major offenses where she just was let off the hook. And it's just perpetuating. Yeah, and it's just perpetuating whatever is going on in her mind to make her think that she can you know, go in and do this. this. So So eventually she was charged with one count of capital murder and three counts of attempted murder. And she was placed on suicide watch. She claimed to have no recollection of anything that happened. And she did end up being treated for paranoid schizophrenia. Although the physician that who originally worked the diagnosis ended up retracting it. Now there have been several suicide attempts throughout her time in jail, but she has survived. She pleaded guilty by reason of insanity, and they agreed not to seek to seek the death penalty in exchange for a guilty plea. And Amy agreed to this, and she was sentenced to life without parole. She is currently in Julia Tutwiler Prison in Alabama, which if you join us and listen to our previous cases, you will find that the Julia Tutwiler Prison has a theme in our podcast. Yes, there are three. There are three, three. and there are some bad, bad people in there. So we hope that you will join us and come hear more about those cases and all the other ones. We hope to see you on Tuesdays. Yeah, so until then, you know what they said to Felicia. Bye. Bye. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast. Proud member of the Murderly Network. And this is the story of Anne Shorthall.
three and grandmother to two in 2015. She lived in Wicklow Town with one of her children. She was a vivacious woman, but was bad with money. She rented the place she lived in because she had lost her first house when she didn't make the mortgage repayments. She'd only managed to keep it as long as she did because her estranged husband, Colin, had continued to make his half of the payments while the kids were living there. But when the kids moved out, he started giving the money directly to them, and it was only then that he found out about the huge amount of arrears owed by Anne, which by then was way too late. Anne hadn't worked in ten years, and lived entirely off social welfare to pay her rent and other bills. And things were becoming increasingly more tight for her. Her rent allowance was reduced by 200 euro in 2014, and she was hit hard by the increases in her cigarette and alcohol prices each year in the budget. She had some mental health issues on top of all this, and was on medication to try and help her cope. But as her kids grew older, they got used to her routine of staying up most of the night drinking and sleeping most of the next day. She lived for her family, though, and adored her grandkids as they came along. She had three by 2015 and loved playing the role of granny. She doted on them and was close to her kids, too. Which is why, on the 3rd of March 2015, when she didn't return home, her kids immediately began to worry. What's worse, she left her phone charging and her cigarettes on the table in her house. Two things she was never seen without. Quickly, Anne's daughter reported her missing. Search parties were organised over that bank holiday weekend to find her. She had gone missing on Good Friday. Eventually, her daughters went through her phone and found that their mum had been texting someone just before she had left the house. The last text read, On the way... The girls called the number, and the man who answered said that they must have the wrong number. Of course, the girls knew that couldn't be right, so they called back again. This time, the man said that all he knew was that Anne had said she was going to London to meet a friend. But Anne didn't even have a passport. It just didn't make sense. The girls passed this information on to the guardie, the Irish police, who tracked the phone number to a local man. Roy Webster. Roy was a married man, a father of two young children, and he worked as a carpenter. He lived in nearby Ashford, County Wicklow. When the guardie looked at the messages sent between the two, they noted that one from Anne read, quote, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm pregnant, end quote. And a second one from her was sent to Roy the day that she disappeared, saying that she was on the way. He would have to be contacted. Roy agreed to give the guardie a formal statement the following Monday, the 6th of April, in Wicklow Garda Station. He told the police that he had known Anne for two years and that he had had a one-night stand with Anne the previous Christmas, when he had been out on a work night out in Wicklow Town. He said that nobody knew about the quote-unquote fling, but that later Anne had claimed that she was pregnant. He didn't believe her. He said he was so drunk the night that they got together that he hadn't ejaculated. He told her as much and said he wanted to see a pregnancy test from her. They'd agreed to meet that Good Friday at the Leitrim pub in Wicklow. When they met, they both got into his work van and drove to a quiet area near an industrial estate by the coast. He said he wanted proof that she was pregnant 
and that he was the father. She told him she was going to England for an abortion. He told the guardee that when they were done talking, she got out of the van and walked back towards Wicklow Town, and that he never saw her again. He gave the guardee permission to search his van and phone and take custody of them. The next day, when he had told his wife, Sinead, about what was going on and this fling that he had had with Anne, he rang the guardie back and asked when they would be done with his van and phone. He also asked if they had checked the CCTV to confirm his story. He confirmed for them that he had had sex with Anne on the 20th of December and told them for the first time that she had asked him for £6,500 for an abortion in England. He scoffed at this to them, saying that Sinead had looked it up. If Anne was 15 weeks along, an abortion would have only cost about €700 plus flights. So there. The next day, the guardie called to his house. They wanted to find out exactly where Roy had let Anne out of his van the night that she disappeared. They were let into the house by his wife, Sinead, who complained to them about the media attention that her husband had been getting. He'd been linked to the disappearance on social media, and his picture had even appeared in a newspaper. The guardie told her not to upset herself by reading the papers, that she should just ignore it, and they went inside and took their seats. Sinead was pretty irritated, and she turned to her husband and said, Is there anything you're not saying? Roy said no, but she persevered. Now's the time to say it if you have something to say, she said. Finally, she demanded, Did you hurt her, Roy? Roy said yes. The detective who was present immediately began cautioning Roy, but Sinead continued, Did you hit her, Roy? Yes, he said. He had hit her with a hammer. Roy then broke down crying, and Sinead, who had been standing holding their three-week-old baby, fell to her knees. The game was up, and the sobbing Roy Webster knew this now. He continued talking as Sinead tried to get a hold of family to tell them what had happened. They arrived one by one to the house as Roy spoke to the police. He told them then what had really happened. He had met Anne Shorthall on that night, all right. He had been out with a few friends for their Christmas drinks, and he had insisted on staying on with Anne when the other guys had left. Roy had gone back to her home that night, and they had slept together. It wasn't until a few months later that Anne had somehow tracked down his number and they began to text, sort of. She said that she was pregnant and that she wanted money for him for an abortion. A huge amount of money. They had met on Holy Thursday, too, when Roy demanded proof that she was pregnant from her, and they made arrangements to meet again the next day so that she could show him this proof. He had met her at the pub on the Friday, and they had driven to the industrial estate at the Murrah, all right. He said, she had me against a wall. Anne had threatened to tell his wife and ruin his life and his career. He described feeling as if he was watching himself, like an out-of-body experience, as he got out of the van, opened the back, picked up a claw hammer, and struck Anne a number of times about the head. He then decided to duct tape her wrists together to stop her flailing about in the van, he said, and then wrap her head in the tape too to stop her bleeding, he explained. He then put the body in the back of the van and drove to a shop. He called Sinead to see if they needed anything, but no, she said, she was fine. Then he went home. 
He made some coffee and chatted with his wife. He told Sinead that the cut that he had on his arm was from a tiling job that he had had that morning. He had his dinner, and then he put his two small children to bed. He settled down on the couch to watch TV and had a glass of wine. He fell asleep there until one of Anne's daughters rang his phone, waking him up, looking for her mother. The next day he carried about his business as usual, went shopping with his family. He only remembered about Anne's body in his van when he went out there to grab something. He decided it would be better to put Anne's body out in his workshop, connected to his shed in the family's garden. He noticed that she had gone stiff as he hid her body out there behind some wooden boards. He had had a call from the guardie that night, and he had told them the tale that he had met her and last seen her walking towards Wicklow Town. The next day, Easter Sunday, he had had a pyjama day and watched films with his kids. Roy Webster was arrested that Tuesday night and brought to Wicklow Garda Station under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. He was charged with the murder of Anne Shorthall on the 8th of April 2015 at a special sitting of the District Court in Bray County, Wicklow, and was sent to Clover Hill Prison. He never made any application for bail, and so was in prison until his trial began. Six weeks after her death, a brother of Anne's committed suicide. His death was attributed to the grief of the loss of Anne by their family. The trial began in March of 2017 in the Central Criminal Court in Dublin, by which time Sinead had left Roy. She still turned up to see the trial with the other members of Roy's family, though, with Anne's kids and the rest of her family sitting on the other side of the courtroom. Mr. Justice Patrick McCarthy was presiding, and the jury consisted of seven men and four women. Webster had pled guilty to manslaughter, but denied the charge of murder. The state had rejected his plea, and so on went the trial. He argued the defense of provocation, which is only a partial defense to the charge of murder. Basically, it boils down to the argument that somehow the deceased person's actions had such an effect on the accused that they lost control of their actions. Not merely losing their temper, there has to be a sudden and total loss of control of the accused Though this loss of control is subjective, that is, the jury must believe that the person in question lost control in the given circumstances, not that it was necessarily reasonable for them to do so. And this was the approach taken by Webster and his defense team. They argued that Anne Shorthall and her attempt to blackmail Webster had completely pushed him over the edge. When she met him and insisted that he come up with a huge amount of money to keep her quiet and take care of the pregnancy, he utterly lost control, as evidenced by his reporting of a kind of out-of-body experience, and further by his detachment from what had happened after the killing, where he went about his routine as normal, as if nothing had happened. The prosecution also presented evidence that Anne not only had been trying to extort money from Webster, but she was also lying about it. Her family doctor gave evidence that she presented in early 2016 complaining of very heavy periods, and she was sent to a gynecologist for a test of her uterine lining. In both cases, the doctor was sure she wasn't pregnant. In fact, a test is routinely done before samples like that are taken by gynecologists. And not only that, Anne seemed to be quite aware of the fact that she was not pregnant. When Roy had been told about this by the guardee during an interview, he had said, I fucking knew it. 
Evidence was also given of Anne's debts at the time of her death. She owed a number of months' rent, and her landlord had brought an eviction notice against her. She also owed over €2,000 for electricity. Just before her death, she had contacted the letting agent who was dealing with her eviction, telling her that Anne had not only come up with the money, but would be able to pay another couple of months' rent in advance. She told the agent, quote, I ain't going nowhere. Gardy gave evidence of their dealings with Roy, from their initial conversations to his breakdown and confession in his sitting room. They told the court about how, after confessing, he had told them that Anne's body was out in the shed, and that they found her in behind the wooden boards, and how they had established the crime scene before the body was removed for post-mortem. The autopsy was carried out by Dr. Mary Cassidy, who told the court that Anne had been struck moderately hard nine times on the head with a blunt object. The wounds were consistent with a hammer. If that hadn't killed her, having her head fully wrapped with duct tape obstructing her airways most certainly would have ensured this. Though, she pointed out, there was no signs of asphyxiation. She also noted injuries on Anne's hands and arms, consistent with defence wounds. In closing for the prosecution, Paul Green, senior counsel, argued that even though Webster had no detailed plan to kill Anne, he had that intention when he grabbed the hammer from the back of his van. Intent, the legal principle of mens rea, could be formed immediately, and that death was the natural and probable consequence of his hitting Anne repeatedly with the claw hammer. He went on to point out that Webster had seemed completely normal after the attack, according to his wife and other witnesses, and hadn't lost control of himself until after he was backed into a corner. Just after the killing, he had the presence of mind to wash the blood from his hands with white spirits and clean the claw hammer. Brendan Grehan, for the defence, argued that Webster had no control of himself when the act was committed and pointed to his statements, indicating that he was, quote, looking down on someone else doing it, and it was, quote, like a horror movie. Anne, by attempting to blackmail Webster, had provoked him such that he lost all control, and this resulted in the attack and her death. The jury retired for deliberations, and during this time asked to rehear the evidence of Professor Cassidy, a Mrs. Phibbs, a friend of Sinead's who had seen Webster after the attack and testified to his demeanour, and a blood spatter expert who had examined his van. On the 24th of March, the jury returned with their verdict. Only 20 minutes earlier, the judge had indicated that he would accept a majority verdict, but these guys were unanimous. Roy Webster was guilty of the murder of Anne Shorthall. His defense of provocation had failed, and a mandatory life sentence was handed down. As the verdict was read out, Roy Webster's mouth hung open, one eyebrow raised, before giving his head a small shake. He was in disbelief. His estranged wife looked straight ahead and showed no emotion, as sobs were heard from Anne Shorthall's nearby family. The trial had lasted eight days. Roy Webster immediately lodged an appeal, and we will have to wait and see how that plays out in court. So there you have it. Don't have one-night stands at Christmas parties. Definitely don't blackmail someone with a fake pregnancy. 
and most certainly don't beat someone to death with a claw hammer. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you heard, go subscribe to Men's Rea Podcast today. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Lisa and your boy Maddie Ice over here on the other mic. Now let's get into the case today, Matt. This one is one where Matt doesn't completely know this case, I don't think, and I'm hoping he doesn't because I'm really interested on in getting his like raw reaction to what happened here, and I'm really I'm, curious. I'm not too familiar. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was designed this way. Yeah. yeah. Yes, this was. This was a case where I just kind of was like, oh, I'm going to write this up one night and just do it. And We're going to do it. And I like to sometimes spring them on Matt because I like to see his real, real-time reaction, because sometimes we discuss what's going on before we actually start recording. This is not one of those cases, ladies and gentlemen, so... It's a little more knee-jerk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's for sure. If I break anything, I'm sorry. It's It kind of reminds me of... Ah, uh, no, it doesn't. Okay, so, let's get into it. A witness testifies he saw Justine Winter's car swerving before a double fatal crash in March of 2009. In week two of the double homicide trial, the defense began unfolding its case. Dax Van Posten has the story. Week two of the Justine Winter trial began Monday with witnesses being called by the defense. One of those witnesses, Eugene Welch, alleges that he actually passed Justine Winter's car just before the crash took place. Attorney David Stuff to ask Welch what he observed about Winter's car. Crossing over the lines, um, both the white line and the, the yellow one. Welch also says he left out a piece of information to officers when he first gave a statement. When I had passed the vehicle, I withheld information that um, I had seen um, a face illuminated by light in the vehicle. Now, it's not clear what caused the illumination from within, possibly the cell phone that Winter had been texting on. Welch says he then passed the vehicle near the Flathead County dump, but he says he wasn't speeding. After passing that vehicle, uh, how fast were you, did you then start going? After I passed the vehicle, between um, 65 and 70 miles an hour. It's alleged by the prosecution that the car being driven by Winter was traveling in excess of 80 miles an hour when it struck Aaron Thompson's car. However, there were some inconsistencies in Welch's testimony. For example, in his initial interview, he said Winter had only crossed the lines on the shoulder of the highway. March 2009. 16-year-old Winter drove her car at 85 miles per hour into oncoming traffic on Montana's Highway 93. She struck and killed 35-year-old Aaron Thompson, who is pregnant, and her 13-year-old son, Caden O'Dell. Thompson and O'Dell were killed in the crash, but Winter survived the suicide attempt. Winter suffered a traumatic brain injury at the crash and spent 47 days in intensive care at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. She was tried as an adult on two counts of deliberate homicide. So let's get into the trial, Matt. So this case, we didn't have much background on Justine Winter, but we do know a little bit. 
So, Flathead County attorney Ed Corrigan successfully argued that a series of text messages between Winter, who threatened to kill herself in messages sent before the collision, and a boy who had just ended a relationship with her were proof her actions were deliberate, right? So, the prosecuting attorney was saying, your text messages to your ex or your boy, I don't know what they were, so to Ryan, saying, I'm going to wreck my car and kill myself, prove that you deliberately drove into traffic to wreck your car and try to kill yourself. Yeah, it shows intent right off the bat. I mean, she was clearly <laughs> intending to kill herself and whatever that took, if it included killing someone else. Yeah, and that's that's where this case is, is going to go off the handles a bit. So Corrigan reiterated the state's conditions or contentions that Winter had just threatened to crash her car Accelerate, accelerated, accelerated as she crossed the center line. So she was not slowing down when she crossed that center line and did not break until the last second before the impact. And she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. She sped on into oncoming, oncoming traffic with text messages minutes before saying, I'm going to crash my car and kill myself. Now, an investigation of the crash shows no tire marks on the road that would have indicated that Winter had tried to avoid the crash. So, as many who drive cars know, if, if you feel like you're going to hit something, the instinct is to swerve, right. right? To swerve away from it, to slam on your brakes. There was no indication, Matt, that she did any of that. She didn't try to swerve away from the vehicles that were in oncoming lane. She didn't try to swerve out of the traffic. She didn't hit the brake until a second before the crash. Clearly. This is all stuff we need to keep in mind. Right. Clearly shows that she was intending to be in an accident to kill herself. That was the intention, yes. Court documents allege that a post-crash inspection of the car showed that Winter was not wearing her seatbelt and she was at 95% throttle, which means she was pedal to the metal. She was all the way, her foot at the floor. She was going as fast as her car would allow her to go. The same report noted that she was traveling 86 miles per hour, three to five seconds before impact, and braked only one second before the impact. We'll talk about that when we talk for I have a friend I. Matt, the defense argued that the crash was an accident that occurred in a poorly marked construction zone. So they're saying that um, there was a screw up. On it was the just the con- yeah, it was just construction. They didn't realize it was a bad area, and she was she lost control. Right now, to add insult oh, to injury, Matt, going eighty six. Yep. <laughs> mind you, get this shit though. Right to add insult to injury, they filed a lawsuit against Aaron Thompson's estate and the construction companies involved in building an overpass where the wreck happened. Let me repreface that. Wow. She, the girl who killed. This woman, her unborn baby, and her child sued her. Sued her. (laughs) I'm not sure who thought that that was a great idea. But basically, they sued her and they sued the company involved in the construction. Now, the lawsuit claimed Winter suffered permanent injuries on the crash and a loss of capacity to enjoy life. She also claimed future loss of income as well as past and present and future medical expenses. Because of your dumbass? Right? Right? Is that not the most infuriating part of this whole thing? How's that fair to M? M- right? Oh, right? So I first before. saw this case on 2020, 2020 covered it, and you guys have to watch it. It's it's so sad. It's so heartbreaking. And it's just infuriating. It's just all around horrible and infuriating because all, like, it's just, she killed a family. And, t- you know, there, there was some kind of intent there. She said 
seconds before she crashed her car that she was going to crash her car. It's just, it's insane to me that that was able to even pass, that any lawyer would have taken that on to sue a, a grieving family who just had three people taken away from them. Right. So... How, how is that even possible? That's... I mean, like, that I, they would hear that... that right? That presentation. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Right? So, Justine was backed by her father, Randy Winter, because of her status as a minor, and they accused Thompson of causing the accident through negligent driving. It just keeps getting worse, Matt. It just keeps getting fucking it, it worse. It all piles on. Who was her attorney? I right? Mean, this asshole. Person. Right? I mean, what a heartless individual. It's just like they just keep piling on shit. You're going to fucking blame a innocent woman and her child for causing an accident that you said you were going to cause seconds before it happened? Like, I don't even understand how this how this was even entered in. I don't understand it at right. all. I mean, with her text messages, it almost seems redundant to go over, like, what happened. Like, come on, we know what happened. Exactly, exactly. She wrote it down. <laughs> exactly. It's right there. The phone so, survived, too. Yeah, right? Unreal. <laughs> so the three companies, Knife River Corporation, Western Traffic Control, Inc., and Mountain West Holding Company, are also accused of failing to properly maintain the highway, which was under construction at the time. Again, we're going to go over all of us an eye for an eye, but this is just absolutely bullshit to me. You're trying to blame the deceased victims and the the construction because you decided to cross bounds after telling someone you're going to kill yourself by crashing your car. Okay. All right. I don't know how this happened at all. Now, in February 2011, Winter was found guilty on two counts of deliberate homicide. District Court Judge Kathleen Curtis, who ruled that Thompson's pregnancy could not be brought up at trial, which I don't understand, sentenced Winter to two 30-year prison terms on the deliberate homicide convictions, suspended 15 years of each, and ordered the sentences to run concurrently. Now, during the trial, Winter never apologized for what happened. She did take the stand a few times um, and, and never once offered her sympathies to the to the uh families of the deceased victims here now in return to the tragic loss and emptiness in their lives all that aaron thompson's family wanted was an apology from the 18 year old who who caused this chaos and horrible horrific nightmare in their lives now according that's all they wanted that's not what i wanted right right now according to the daily interlake when given a chance the evergreen resident so justine seemed to stop short of accepting full responsibility. She survived with serious injuries, and she would say she does not remember what happened the night of the accident and cannot take responsibility for the deaths that resulted because she cannot remember them. She doesn't remember? That, that's probably my favorite of all the defenses people come up with. I just blacked out. I don't remember what happened. Like, Well, she got she did get injured, so that could yeah, be legit, of course but that she doesn't got take injured. away the that's fact that I'm you saying. killed someone. She can't remember sending the text messages before she was injured? I don't know. Sometimes it does wipe away. Like yeah, maybe. maybe. I'm not any brain trauma surgeon, <laughs> Lord knows. But in but any case, saying, that doesn't I mean, take away from the fact that you were the one driving the vehicle that killed hey, these babe, people. Hey, babe, if you don't remember what you said, it's okay. You said it. We, You wrote it down. We got it right here. Mm-hmm. It's documented. So it's fine if you don't remember because it's right here. So in a it's win- crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, we're going to have to go over all of this, but... So basically, she's saying, um, I can't remember, so there's no way I can apologize for what happened because, like, because I can't remember, it wasn't really my fault. Bitch, what? We're going to go over it. So when she finally took the stand in her sentencing hearing, Winter did seek forgiveness, but not the kind that Aaron Thompson's family and Caden's family were looking for. 
I think that the chance needs to be made for you guys to, to be able to forgive me and to move past it. I understand why you weren't allowed to contact the families, and I understand why you didn't present testimony at trial. But what they wanted to hear from you for a long, long time also is I'm sorry. Can you tell them that? I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, but I cannot... I, I don't know what you're meaning by you want me to say that I'm sorry. Okay. I don't have any other questions in your honor. Thank you. Of course, that's some bullshit. Some suggested that Winter deserved the death penalty, while others ur urged compassion because she was just a kid. Because this happened when she was 16. Yeah. So... On September 21st, 2015, the Montana Board of Pardons and Parole granted Winter, who was 22, parole upon completion of a pre-release program in Billings. Winter's first application for parole in 2014 was denied by the board, but she was transferred from Montana's Women's Prison to Passages, which was a pre-release center in Billings on December 10th of that year. She was an inmate, yeah, right, and she was an inmate worker at a pre-release center for six months and then entered its residency program, where Allred said participants get jobs, save money, participate in groups, and transition back into the community. Winter was released in 2015 after only serving four years. She will be on parole until January 20, 2026. If Winter violates the terms of her parole, she may be imprisoned for more than 15 years. Now, a quote from Aaron Thompson's family, they said, It was sooner than any of us expected, but I need to do what will make my heart happy, and for me, that's to wish Justine well and send her love. Huh, Let's talk about it. That's a nice sentiment, at least, but oh my God. I mean, first of all, another case of just young love taken way too far here. Like, yeah, it's crazy. And, and then people think, like, Oh, you know, we shouldn't blame them because they're so young. It's like, listen, I can appreciate that to some degree. But when a kid ultimately comes out and says, I'm going to kill myself, decides to do that going 86 down a highway in opposing traffic where you can very easily kill or hurt someone else, I mean, you're putting other people's lives at risk there. There's very little wiggle room, in my opinion, for that. I would never have had her. I don't know what Montana's... I don't know. I don't know what their statute is. But, I mean, it would be vehicular homicide plus intentional murder. I mean, honestly, there's so many things that you could have charged her with. I just don't understand how they could have taken this so lightly. And then the fact that she's out? After four, four years? years? Come on. Mm -hmm. What has she learned in a work program no, for part of that time? She couldn't even say, I'm sorry. I could say I'm sorry, and I wasn't even fucking involved. Well, I think her attorney probably told her not to say that. Why, though? Why would an attorney do that? Because it admits culpability. Like, admits, yeah. It basically says that you're sorry for what happened, but you're sorry that you did it. But so that I will say I think her attorney it? was a piece of shit anyways, just from hearing this case. So. Yeah. I mean, this guy filed lawsuits against everybody and Jesus, you know, like, <laughs> just to try and blame them. You're like, you know, it was the Green Bay Packers' fault. <laughs> I'm blaming Vince Lombardi. Like, he fucking filed a suit against everybody. Like, That's the most appalling. I mean, it's all appalling to me, the fact that three people, um, one who didn't even get a chance at life yet, were, were that's a horrific way to die. Um and I was listening to a report regarding this case, and they said that 
Aaron did not die instantly on impact and that she was pointing to officers about how where like where's my son and he was ejected from the car so i for night what do you think uh obviously no 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 i don't think she should be out now i don't think she should be out for another 10 years yeah at least but i don't believe she should be killed no no i don't that's a little harsh i think that's a little harsh i think she was a kid and made a mistake and that mistake should cost her the majority of her life a hefty but not her life uh, and no, I don't believe that eye for an eye was met here. I think that she ultimately got off easy. I mean, what for... about the original sentencing, though? Yeah, I it think was that wasn't totally concrete. off base either. But at the same time, it was a little too lenient. I mean, you know, there shouldn't be that wiggle room for somebody to be on parole in four years, yeah. and then be you know fully paroled again in twenty twenty six, ten years later, or whatever that would be. I mean, that's just like yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. There, there's so many loopholes in the system for people like this, and that's why these things happen and they reoffend. She got, what, 60 years and got out in four? Yeah. See, that's fucking insane to me. That's incredible. Um, so, no, I don't believe that I friend I was met at all in this case. I think the sentence that she was originally handed, had it been upheld, would have been an eye for an eye. I think even just 20 Half more years. Time, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, like 15 more years in jail, that would have been fine. Um not fine. Nothing's ever fine, you know, in these cases. However, I think it would have been more just, more... I don't... It's just so crazy that this just... <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us tonight. Let us know what you think. Do you think she should have been released in four years? Do you think she should be in jail still? What do you think her sentence should have been? Where, where do you lay on this case? It's very, very interesting to me. Obviously, you know where we lay. Good night, everyone. Good night. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My name is Stephen Pacheco, and I'm the host of Trace Evidence, a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and missing persons. Today, we're celebrating the launch of Murderly, a new podcast network populated by some of the most talented hosts and intriguing podcasts available today. I'm thrilled to be a part of Murderly, and I wanted to give you a taste of Trace Evidence by examining one of the most bizarre unsolved murder cases I've ever covered, the mysterious death of Chuck Morgan. Chuck Morgan was a family man who married the love of his life, Ruth, and became the father to four beautiful daughters. A kind and generous man, he led a fairly typical life, working for an escrow company and spending his free time relaxing with his family and dreaming of a quiet and calm retirement. In early 1977, everything would change, and Chuck would become wrapped up in a world of criminal activity, undercover work, government agencies, and organized crime. Chuck would disappear, only to return later, the victim of an alleged abduction. His story spoke of violent torture and threats, though he refused to name names. In the aftermath, 
His paranoia accelerated, and he began carrying a gun and wearing a bulletproof vest, which would make his death all the more suspicious. In June of 1977, after being missing for 11 days, Chuck's body was found in a remote desert area outside of Tucson. He'd been shot once in the back of the head. The sheriff's department suggested suicide. The medical examiner disagreed, and the details of what was found at the scene have baffled investigators for the past 40 years. Was Chuck Morgan the victim of a complex plot involving racketeers, government agents, and assassins? Or was it all an illusion created by a troubled man spiraling into an undiagnosed mental illness? This is Trace Evidence, The Mysterious Death of Chuck Morgan. On March 22, 1977, Charles Chuck Morgan left for work as he always did. He kissed Ruth goodbye and shuffled out the front door for another day of pushing paper and balancing accounts. When dinner time came around, Ruth prepared a meal for the girls and Chuck, but as the hours began passing, Chuck failed to return home. He'd been late before, but he usually called. Assuming that he just got caught up in something, Ruth didn't think too much of it, but she'd later begin to panic. When day began turning into night and Ruth was putting the girls to sleep, she knew something was wrong. She called around, but no one seemed to know where Chuck was. Ruth called the police to report her husband missing. Unfortunately, 1977 was a very different time, and the cases of missing adults were not taken as seriously as they are now. She was told that her husband was a grown man, and he could go where he wanted to, but if she hadn't heard from him in 48 hours, they'd take a report. Frustrated and lost, Ruth did what she had to do to keep it together for the girls. She decided she was going to the police department the next day, and she wouldn't be leaving until they took that report. Chuck wasn't the type to just run off, and he loved their daughters more than anything. She laid down to go to sleep, but was awakened at approximately 2 a.m. by the sound of a loud thump at the back door. Ruth was shocked to find Chuck at the back door, missing a shoe with one plastic handcuff around one ankle and a set still bound around his wrists. She quickly pulled him inside, asking him what had happened, and he gestured to his throat, suggesting that he couldn't speak. She handed him a pen and paper, and Chuck wrote a bizarre tale. According to Chuck, he'd been abducted, and his throat had been coated with a hallucinogen that, if not taken care of, could drive him insane or even shut down his central nervous system. When Ruth went to call the police, Chuck wrote down that he was told if they called the police or a doctor, Chuck and his entire family would be in danger. Despite her better judgment, Ruth turned away from the phone and took Chuck into their bedroom. Over the course of the next week, Ruth took care of Chuck and nursed him back to health. At one point, 
Chuck wrote down that his treasury identification was missing, and when asked about it, he made only minor suggestions that he had been working undercover for the Treasury Department in regard to illegal money laundering schemes going on in the area at that time. When Chuck recovered and regained his voice, he never talked about the topic again. When Ruth asked questions, he simply wouldn't answer them. But it became clear early on that Chuck's paranoia was beginning to rise. He became overly protective of the family, restricting their comings and goings, wanting frequent phone calls, and he decided that only he would be the one to drive their daughters to school and to pick them up each day. In addition to that, before Chuck put on his shirt and tie every day, he suited his body with a bulletproof vest and began carrying a 357 Magnum handgun. Several months later, in June, Chuck paid a visit to his father and told him about a letter that he'd written, which would detail exactly what was going on were something to happen to him. Strangely, when he left his father's home that day, Chuck vanished once again. While Ruth was worried, she remembered Chuck's warning about contacting the police and so all she could do was wait. Nine long days would pass, and Ruth would receive a disturbing phone call on the ninth day from a woman who has never been identified. According to Ruth, the woman asked for her by name, and then said, Chuck is all right. She ended the call by saying, Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8, and then she hung up. Not knowing what to do, Ruth looked through her Bible and turned to Ecclesiastes and read sections 1 through 8 of chapter 12, but there was little there that clued her in to what was going on. Upset and confused, Ruth was at a loss for what this could possibly mean, but she felt uplifted having been told that Chuck was alright. Sadly, this uplifting moment would be short-lived, as two days later, Chuck's body would be discovered. Forty miles outside of Tucson, in a deserted area, Chuck was found lying next to his car. He'd been shot once in the back of the head. His 357 Magnum was found next to his body. Police ultimately determined that Chuck's cause of death was suicide, but there were details about the crime scene that didn't fit that scenario. Gunshot residue testing found that Chuck's left hand had recently fired a gun despite the fact that he was right-handed. Other details of items found at the scene would add to the confusion. These items included one of Chuck's own teeth found wrapped in a handkerchief in his car. Multiple weapons, ammunition, and CB radios were also found in the vehicle. In what can only be considered a bizarre twist, a $2 bill was found inside the waistband of Chuck's underwear. The word Ecclesiastes and a number 12 were written on the bill. There were also arrows drawn in, pointing to the numbers 1 and 8 on the bill's serial number. There were seven Spanish names written on the bill, starting with the letter A and running alphabetically to the letter G. On the back of the bill, which depicts the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the individuals pictured were labeled with numbers 1 through 7.
Despite these strange details, the Pima County Sheriff's Department decided it was suicide. The county medical examiner disagreed, declaring Chuck's death to be of an unknown cause. Several days later, authorities received a phone call from an anonymous woman, apparently the same one who had called Ruth. This time, she referred to herself as Green Eyes, and she claimed to have spent time with Chuck in the days before his death. She told a strange story about Chuck having a briefcase with $60,000 in it and that he was planning to buy himself out of a contract that an assassin had taken to end his life. Two weeks after Chuck's death, two men visited Ruth at home. They identified themselves as FBI agents and were granted permission to search the home, claiming that they were working a case in relation to Chuck's death. The two men tore the home apart, never stating what they were looking for, and then left. When Ruth called the FBI to follow up, she was told no agents were sent to her home and they were in no way involved in an investigation related to Chuck's death. For the next 13 years, the questions revolving around Chuck's death would remain unanswered, and the police would continue to state that they believed it to have been suicide. Then, in February of 1990, a local reporter named Don Devereaux would dig into the case, and he would find what he believed to be connections that suggested that not only was organized crime involved in Chuck's death, but possibly government agents and even the CIA. Several months after making these statements and investigating Chuck's death, a man named Doug Johnston was killed execution style, when he was shot once behind his left ear. This murder took place in the parking lot across from Devereaux's home. When Devereaux began to look into the murder, he discovered that Johnston drove the same style and color of vehicle as he did. At the time, their addresses were only one digit apart. Devereaux was later told that a hit had been taken out on him, and that Johnston's death may have been a result of mistaken identity. Devereaux believes to this day that there is a connection between the murder of Johnston and the death of Chuck Morgan. The mystery surrounding Chuck Morgan's death is absolutely baffling, and in the years since, several theories have risen to the surface. One theory agrees with the Pima County Sheriff's Department, and suggest that Chuck had either been using illicit drugs or had suffered from some form of mental illness, which resulted in hallucinations, paranoia, and ultimately, death by suicide. Another theory believes that Chuck had been conducting illegal activities for members of an organized crime family, and that he'd either become a threat to them or had been attempting to scam them, and this resulted in his abduction and later on, his murder by a contract killer. Another theory alleges that Chuck may have been working as an undercover agent for the United States Treasury Department after having been recruited to assist with a sting operation regarding money laundering and land grab schemes involving organized crime and possibly government agents. His death is believed, in this line of thought, to have come after it was discovered that he was working with authorities. 
Chuck's family had no choice but to go on with their lives, though they never believed the stories about their father having killed himself. In 2006, sadly, Ruth lost a long battle with cancer and passed away, having never learned the truth. Chuck's daughters maintained that their father was murdered, and when his daughter Megan was asked about his death, she later stated, My father had a lot of information about people here in Tucson that could have been very detrimental. There was a lot of information about politicians, people who were still active and that work in the government today. He had that information, and they wanted to silence him. The death of Chuck Morgan is an incredibly bizarre and disturbing story, with a lot of details and fascinating theories. This was only a surface-level summary of the case, and if you'd like to hear the full story with in-depth detail and a thorough examination of the theories, make sure to check out my podcast, Trace Evidence, as I'll be releasing the full feature-length episode this week. I want to thank Murderly and all of the other podcasts associated with the network for their support, kindness, and incredible work ethic. I believe we're at the beginning of what's going to be a great place for podcasters to join together in a tight-knit community of supportive and driven contemporaries. For more information about Murderly, visit murder.ly and make sure to check out all of the amazing podcasts you can find there. If you're looking for more information about Trace Evidence, visit trace-evidence.com for full episodes, transcripts, videos, and all of my social media accounts. Like, subscribe, and rate, and I'll see you next week for another unsolved case on the next episode of Trace Evidence, now a part of the Murderly family. Welcome to Mysteries and Urban Legends podcast. We're just doing a little um, a little story for the Murderly Network. Um, first, just to say a little bit about ourselves. My name is Alex and I do Urban Legends and I'm here with my lovely co-host Ben. Hello. And he does Mysteries. Therefore, Mysteries and Urban Legends. That's it. We do what we say on the box. It's, it's very straightforward. It's very straightforward what we do. Um, so to give you a little taste of what we do today, Ben's going to tell us a story. Um, yeah. It'll be a mystery. He sometimes does true crime mysteries mostly, but sometimes they're not true crime. Sometimes they're just, just anything, weird mysteries. Anything that's just a mystery and has people baffled and scratching their heads as to what exactly occurred or how. There's never a satisfying answer with his stories. Right. Whereas I do urban legends, so I do stuff like Slender Man or Mothman or 
all the mans. Yep. Try to find out where the stories came from, like what yeah. what they're based in. And, you know. I do stories from all over the world, so sometimes I can't pronounce things, and I'm very sorry <laughs> about that. But I don't speak every language, I and I'd like to um, do urban le- legends that I haven't heard of before. Sometimes I mispronounce things, too, and I just can't <laughs> read properly, I think. <laughs> so anyway... Today is a mystery, so take it away, Ben. All right, today is a mystery. Um, it's called The Murder in Room 1046. This is a, an actual murder mystery that occurred in the United States uh, a long time ago, actually. Okay. I'm intrigued. So, all right, on January 2nd of 1935... Oh, Jesus. Yeah. A man checked into Room 1046 at the Hotel President in Kansas City. His name, according to the hotel register, was Roland T. Owen, and he was from Los Angeles. The clerk recalled that he had a cauliflower ear, brown hair, and a horizontal scar on his scalp. What does cauliflower ear mean? I've read it everywhere, but I don't know what that means. It's usually boxers get it, like when they've been hit in the ear, and it like the ear resembles the tissue scars, and it resembles like oh, had a cauliflower. Oh, okay. That's weird. I don't think Mick, I've ever seen that. Mick Foley had his ear was like really cauliflowered and it tore off during a wrestling <gasps> match one time. Oh my god. <laughs> he was doing the thing, you know, where they get hung in the ropes and all yeah. that. And he the cables were too tight or something like that, tighter than they thought oh they were gonna be. God. And he ripping his head out of there, he tore his ear off to get his Jesus neck loose. Christ. He, almost, he almost strangled to death. Oh my god. Anyway, that's neither, that's not part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> a little sidetrack. Um, so he had no luggage with him except for a hairbrush, a comb, and toothpaste. What? Yeah. <laughs> Talking about traveling lightly. Huh? Um, why even bother with, like, yeah, okay, the toothbrush, but why bother with the other I mean, things? No, he like... didn't have a toothbrush, just toothpaste. Oh. <laughs> and, a, and a hairbrush and a comb. He had a hairbrush and a comb. <laughs> One, you just need one of those. Yeah. Just, and you need a toothbrush. Well, it gets weirder. Okay. Um, that same day, Owen checked into the hotel. Uh, a maid stopped by his room at ten forty. By his room, ten forty-six. Um, according to her, Owen seemed frightened. The blinds were shut tight, and the room's only source of light was a small table lamp. After the maid was done cleaning the room, Owen asked her to leave the door unlocked because he was expecting a friend. Later, when the maid returned with fresh towels, she saw a note on the dresser that read, Dawn, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. So, the next morning, the maid returns to the room. She found it to be locked from the outside. So she assumed Owen had gone out. But to her surprise, Owen was very much in the room. (laughs) Meaning that someone had locked him inside. Okay. Now, just like the previous night, Owen was sitting in the dark. While she was there, the phone rang, and Owen answered it, saying, No, Dawn, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. Okay. Okay. So that same day, a motorist named Robert Lane picked up a man near the hotel president. The man apparently told Lane that he was going to kill someone tomorrow. (laughs) I don't know how that came up, but apparently that's what he told him. Oh my god, worst hitman ever. Well, later on, Lane identified that stranger that he picked up as Owen. Oh. Okay. Well, he's not very he's not very suave. 
Well, so that night, when the maid returned to the room 1046 with this fresh towels... This maid is all up in his business. She's there a lot, isn't she's she? She's there. Oh, I've never had a maid be so attentive. Seriously, I thought the same thing when I read this. I was like, I've never had a maid in my room so much. I've never been in the room when the maid's in the room. <laughs> they do that shit when you're not in there. Maybe he never left. Anyway. Well, he did for that time when he wasn't there and he left the note for Dawn. Well, anyway, when she gets there with the fresh towels, she was turned away by a gruff-sounding man. The next morning, the hotel staff noticed that the telephone in room 1046 was off the hook. So a bellboy was sent up to the room where he discovered Owen in a pool of blood. Oh, Jesus. It was obvious to police that Owen had been tortured. but But when they asked him who did this to him, he said nobody. Oh, he's still alive. For now. Okay. According to him, his wounds were the result of him falling against the bathtub. What? Yeah, that's that's what he told. That's actually what he told the police. That oh my god! He had fallen into the bathtub, and also okay. his his clothes were missing. Not off, but they're missing. What? That was a hell of a fall. <laughs> he knocked his clothes off and out of the room. Whoa. Okay. Okay, so now shit starts to get really weird. <laughs> oh, it's not already? Well, it's, it's, it's weird, but it gets weirder. Okay. So the police tried to confirm Owen's identity. They found that Ro- Roland T. Owen didn't exist. Oh, God. Owen, they found, had now be- Owen, who had now become a John Doe, he died in the hospital from his wounds. And of falling against the bathtub. Yeah, of falling against the bathtub. Okay. Remember, he was. That's a, he got like. They didn't try to get a story out of him. Like, oh, I fell against the tub. You've obviously been tortured. No, I fell against the tub. Your clothes are missing. I fell against the tub. <laughs> and it was bad enough that he died from them. Seriously, like there should have been a detective on that guy the entire time. Like, Ser- what yeah. the fuck happened? What to is you? going on with this guy? What is happening? You're going to die. Tell me who did this. Yeah, exactly. So he dies in the hospital, and he's meant to be buried in a potter's field because he's just a John Doe. However, an anonymous call comes asking for the burial to be postponed until funds for a proper funeral could be wired. Okay. So along with the funeral funds, 13 flowers are sent to the funeral, signed Love Forever Louise. Okay. So, a year later, in 1936, a woman reading about the case thought that Owen looked a lot like her friend's missing son, Artemis Ogletree. Ogletree's mother would later confirm that the man from room 1046 was indeed her son, but the case still soon became cold and never progressed any further. Police never found the mysterious Dawn, and they could never track down the mysterious Louise who paid for the the burial and the flowers. So Louise wasn't the mother or anything? Nope. It was some complete apparent stranger. Like, or just Well, I imagine she wasn't a stranger, but they never could find out exactly who she was. That is so weird. Yeah. They can, and they can never track down this mysterious Dawn or this Louise who paid for these flowers and the funeral. And he was supposedly meant to kill someone, but he ends up dead. Yeah. I guess. So I guess that didn't go very well. No, I guess not. Well, that's just really weird. Yeah. That's not satisfying at all. (laughs) But that's the murder that occurred in room 1046 in the Hotel President in Kansas City. Jesus. 
Where do you find this stuff? It's just, it's out there if you look for it. Mm. <laughs> mm. Okay. So that's just, it's a little sample of kind of, kind of the thing we do. That's just like a short little story. It's Mine are much more satisfying. I should say. Mine come with, like, answers. Yeah, mine are mysteries. They don't have answers. Yeah, that's frustrating. You know what frustrates me? It frustrates me every week. Oh, it frustrates me, too. It's, so. That was very frustrating. But that's it. That's a little sample of what you'll get from us here on the Murder Lady Network. Um, and so. I hope you enjoy and um, subscribe there's a lot of good podcasts on this network. There's a heap of good podcasts. Everybody we're, is excellent. We're joined with, we're in very fine company yes. on this awesome network, and we're very excited to be a part of it. And um, I hope to see you all. Um, should I rattle off the social media stuff? Sure, yeah, let's just give our social media. Okay, quick. if you want to contact us um, on Facebook, we're facebook.com slash podcast M-A-U-L, podcast so um on twitter and instagram we're just at more podcasts and our email is more podcast at gmail.com so on social media basically if you search more podcasts will come up but on um itunes or something like that you have to search mysteries and urban legends to find us that's it yeah so hope to see you around yeah i hope to to talk to you guys again soon. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. See ya. Bye, guys. I am Lux. And I am Sam. And this is a little mini-sode, which we like to call Killing It Quickly. Our Killing It Quickly episodes are like a sort of shorter version of our normal episodes. If you listen to us regularly, you know we end up jabbering on for quite a while. It ends up being about an hour. Uh, So these episodes will always be 20 minutes or less. And it's just a nice little episode. Just some fun stories. So uh, I reckon we're going to jump right in. Let's do it. You are going first? Yep. Yeah, right. Let's do it. Yes. So to find this story, I just sort of typed in like, Weird crime. Yeah, just to clarify. Weird the, murder. The killing it quickly is we tend to try and make them a bit funnier. Yeah. Normally it's really research heavy and it's a bit fun, but um, these ones, they're going to be like... Light short they're stories. Very, we, we try and make them very dumb. Yeah. So yeah, I just typed in like weird crime and uh, my sources for this were from The Consumerist and The Washington Post. Are you ready, Sam? I'm ready. I don't think you know what's about to happen. I genuinely don't. No. That is a fact. (laughs) So, in September of 2006, in Florida, a 23-year-old man called Joshua James was arrested for petty theft, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, and unlawful possession and transportation of an alligator. Oh, wow. Okay. Guess what the deadly weapon was? 
Was it the alligator? It was the alligator. Oh my God. <laughs> Did they class the alligator as a deadly weapon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in October of the previous year, Joshua James was wearing a backwards baseball cap. Of Classic course he was. dangerous person. Um, Either that or he was about to engage in a Pokemon battle. <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe that's what the alligator was. Oh my god! <laughs> he just sort of threw it. And he was like, "What do they? What do they say when they throw the Pokemon balls?" Uh, go get them, alligator. Okay, yeah. <laughs> just throwing an alligator <laughs> at someone. So, alligator, use bite. <laughs> Doesn't have any other moves. Tail whip. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes. Um. So, he was just driving along, driving along with his backwards baseball cap, and he saw a three and a half foot alligator on the side of the road. Naturally, as one does, he put it in the back of his truck and um, continued on his journey to Wendy's, the fast food chain restaurant. Where else would you go with an alligator? Of course. He was taking it for lunch, mate. It's adorable. What are you going to do? Take it to Burger King? (laughs) Don't be ridiculous. So he makes his order at the drive-thru and then heads to the collection window. He pays. He takes his jumbo-sized soda. And he then reaches in to the back of his trunk, pulls the alligator out, and throws it at the drive through clerk. Oh, my God. He genuinely threw the alligator. Oh, my God. Yep. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I knew you it's would. It's like, you know, there's like there's that prank where you like throw a milkshake or something. Or yeah. you fries. <laughs> he threw an alligator. Oh, my God. That's so fucking crazy. I love that. Yeah. That's so funny. Um... <laughs> So, this is his... So, he was caught about a year later. And this man has been ordered to stay away from all Wendy's. He's been given 75 hours of community service. He was charged $500 and now has a criminal record. Oh, my God. He's also been told to get a mental health evaluation and to stay away from all animals, with the exception of his mum's dog. What? I mean, yeah. (laughs) He's going to fucking throw this dog at everyone. Maybe he did think it was a Pokemon. (laughs) Oh my god, he actually thought... I, I, I would love it. There are two things in my head. One, he thought it was a Pokemon battle. Mm. He thought the guy at the driving thing it was... It was a lady. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hashtag woke. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, like, I, assume, I hope he thought it was a Pokemon battle. Either that, I just love that that's the most Floridian version of that prank. Right. It literally... If someone told me that that happened, and it wasn't like in the context of this, I'd just be like... But that's too obvious. <laughs> that's too obvious. It's literally just like in England, it's just like, ha, here's your burger back. <laughs> Drive away, Cuthbert. <laughs> in America, it's just like, here's your fucking gator. <laughs> I love that. I so, love that. In attempting to explain himself, he said it was a prank. According to his parents, he knew the Wendy's employee and thought it would be funny to throw an alligator at her. Um, Judge Barry Cohen disagreed with this statement and said, this type of thing is not a prank, it's a crime. And in my view, there is absolutely no excuse for taking an animal, particularly an alligator, and throwing it through a window at a total stranger. I'm with you, Judge. Yeah. I'm on your side. So no one was injured, which is great. It's very funny, though. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to show you a video in the bit. Even the clerk thinks it's funny. It is funny. So no one was injured, uh, not even the alligator, which was released back into the wild. Mm, good. Would you like to see the video, video of this alligator being thrown at a clerk? Uh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, so Lux just showed me the video. Um, mm. <laughs> it's very funny. The clerk clearly, she thinks she it's it, funny. She knew it was a joke. Like, and you, also... You see the gator for just one second, like yeah. half a second. It just goes... 
it flies by. And, you know, she's just smiling and then <laughs> she's like smiling and laughing. And then after a while, you can sort of see it cross her mind that she's like, oh, shit. I'd best get out. Yeah. And she just like backs up out of the window. I think it, I think it's a hilarious prank. But I mean, obviously, you know, you don't know what the alligator could have done. He could have bitten your friend's hand off. So yeah. it wouldn't have been funny if people had been hurt, but they weren't. So it is funny. It was super dumb, but I love yeah. it. All right. Tell me yours now. Cool. OK, so we're going to go on to my story now. Uh, this is the story of Ricardo Richardson. Okie dokie. Now, Ricardo Richardson and his friend Mike Desiderio, uh, they were two part-time homeless teen boys living in Queens, which they basically were... means they like they squat, they stay with friends. Oh, okay. You know, stuff like that. Uh, the two were squatting with a group of other young teenagers in a house on Maspeth Avenue in Queens. Um, Ricardo and Mike were out on the night of June 12th, 2004. They had a wild night of what I can only assume was some weird, wild Queens homeless teen-based rave. Yeah. I joke, but I, 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 I genuinely have been to raves like that in Cambridge. It's in an abandoned warehouse, and it's like the opening scene of Blade. You're literally so cool, I can't deal with it. Like, uh, I'm not going to say which warehouse it was that all the filthy, disgusting raving was going on. I know which one it was. You pointed it out to me once. Yeah, but like, if you're from Cambridge, you know, you know which one it is. Unless you're a nerd like me. Uh, so, they arrived home very early the next morning and decided it was time for a nice rest. And this is where shit got like really messed up. Okay. Uh, an extremely heated argument ensued about a pillow. Oh. A very heated argument about a pillow. Oh. And now like this story on the face of it is kind of insane, but I thought it'd be fun to do like a dramatic reading. Yes, so I'm, I'm about read this, that. I'm going to read this as if it were a, like a, an exciting, crazy Like dramatic. you're the narrator for yeah, a I'm true crime show. <clears throat> okay, here we go. <sighs> Descend into the role. Mike was exhausted. The long night of raving had made the inside of his head feeling like it was spinning faster than a ballerina trapped in a washing machine. He had danced and 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 danced until, not unlike this sentence, the word lost its meaning. He finally arrived back to his squat. Finally. He walked through the doors, and there on the floor was his trusty pillow. Ah, pillow. Its soft, supple curves drifted ever so gently across Mike's coarse, world-weary cheek as the gentle fabric slithered round to the side of his head cradling him as though it were the loving family he yearned for Mike felt a single tear dance its way down his face blazing a crystal trail which glimmered and sparkled in the morning sun which was fighting its way through the shabby curtains but even the intrusive sun could not tempt Mike away from this moment of pure unmediated bliss for he had holding in his hand as it held him his pillow. Suddenly, Ricardo was above him, and as quickly as he appeared, he swiped the pillow out from under Mike's head. Mike felt as though he just had a child torn from him, and he began to yell at Ricardo. Ricardo did not have to be persuaded to respond with anger, and he began yelling also. Mike snatched the pillow back, but was weak. He had tired his hands out from making finger guns and clutching glow sticks. The night got heated. Suddenly, as if from nowhere, Ricardo revealed a long slice of reflective steel. He was holding a samurai sword. Oh my god! You still going? Yeah, I'm still going. Oh, okay. He was holding a he was holding a samurai sword. Okay, back back into the roll. Back into the roll. Ricardo brought the blade down on Mike repeatedly, over and over. He has spent days infusing his psyche with powerful drugs, cocaine, and other concoctions to muddle the mind. Before he knew what he had done, Mike was dead. The pillow, soaked in blood, was forgotten about. 
perched on the floor, witnessing Ricardo fleeing the scene of his friend's body, never to cradle Mike's head again. God! That was beautiful. Thank you. That was I was not expecting it to end that way. Fuck. Yeah, I thought it would be better as a as a as a dramatic reading. I was on the edge of my seat. I hope so. Um, so Ricardo was caught soon after and was charged with murder. Uh, he went to court and his initial claim was that Mike had brandished a pellet gun, and Ricardo had thought it was a real gun. Right. Um, but eventually he changed his story and kind of admitted that he'd been so fucked on drugs for the days leading up to the murder that he just. Went nuts I want to know him. where a homeless boy got a samurai sword. Well, apparently he always used to brag that he kept it in the boot of his car. So again, he's part-time. He's not like a right. proper homeless. He's like a runaway kid. You right, know, like yeah, yeah. Stays with friends, lives in squats, occasionally goes and sees his parents. But he's like, he's not homeless. Right, okay. But yeah, uh, he was given, due to the fact that he had been so out of his mind at the time, and I imagine, yeah, there were some other things, and he pled guilty, he was given 15 years minimum in prison. Uh, that's the very minimum. No okay. chance of parole until I'm, I'm, 15 I'm years. I'm comfortable with that. So that's that's my story. That was beautiful. That's my story of the death of Mike Desiderio. All right, guys. That's it from us this week. I'm still kind of reeling from the fact that I'm not sure why I decided that would work better as a dramatic reading. I think it was beautiful. Should I do more dramatic readings? Let us know what you think. I genuinely, if you want more of these dramatic readings, I'll do it. I'll do, I'll do voices. Bitch, I'll do it. Oh, we'll do it. We'll, we'll, we'll do voices. We'll do accents. Yeah. I already do all of those. Yeah, but we'll <laughs> but, do it you more. Know, controlled. I say we. Sam will do it more. Yeah. So, so uh, that had been uh, Killing It Quickly. That had been Killing It Quickly. All right. I don't know. You just stumbled over your words a bit, so I thought it was funny. That was Killing It Quickly. Kill, kill, that was Killing It quickly. quickly. Right. So you can let us know what you think on Twitter at Killing It Crime. You can let us know on Instagram. You always mess up on the word Instagram. Why can't I pronounce it? Always. Every single time. It's Instagram, Instagram. <laughs> every single time. So you can follow us on Instagram at Killing It Crimecast and you can email us at Killing It Crimecast at gmail.com. You can also rate and review on iTunes. Yes. So give us a, a nice cheeky little five star review and we'll, we'll name drop you. We'll yeah, say we'll thank give you. A shout out. Also, just to mention again, we do have an active Patreon as of last week. So give us some dollar if you want extra episodes. Okay, so we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Martinis and the Macabre podcast. This show contains graphic content and explicit language and is intended for immature adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. of Martinis and the Macabre, the podcast where we drunkenly discuss morbid murders, mysteries, and mayhem, and joke inappropriately. We want to thank you for listening to this mini-sode extravaganza brought to you by the Murderly Network, Podcasts to Die For. 
So thank you, and we hope you enjoy this story we have for you about John and Leanne Sabine. John and Leanne, who usually went by Lee, met in the late 1950s in a London hospital. Lee was 17 and training to become a nurse. John was a patient at the hospital and was a married 28-year-old with two children. She must have given him one hell of a bed bath because the two started having an affair and Lee quickly became pregnant. John's wife promptly threw him out and the two lovers shacked up. <laughs> Does she scrub your balls better than me? Or, uh, yeah. She must. Their first child, Susan, was born in January of 1959, but the two wouldn't marry until November of 1960, most likely having to wait on Lee to be of age. So three more children were born over the next five years, Stephen, Martin, and Jane. John worked as an accountant while Lee stayed home to raise the kids. They moved around a lot, relocating to Kent, Hereford, and Swansea. But in 1965, John was facing accusations that he had defrauded his company of $6,000, which is probably a shit ton of money back in that day. Sweetie, we're poor. That's a shit ton of money now. Yeah. So, the couple disappeared from Southwest England and immigrated to New Zealand, where their fifth child, Lee Ann, was born in 1967. That's, so she uh, was named after her mom, but a different spelling. That's, um... Southwest Eng that's a big trip. Yeah. In nineteen sixty nine they flew the coop again, but this time without their children. <laughs> the children, aged two to eleven, were abandoned in an Auckland nursery. News reports say the couple moved across Australia and New Zealand through the nineteen seventies and early eighties under the assumed surname Martin. And if I had a nickel, huh? For yeah. every time I was like, let's just fucking leave the kids. Yeah, the run. just we're going to drop them at this orphanage, and we're going to jet. In the mid-1980s, 15 years after dumping their children, John and Lee actually tried to make contact with them. Being a little pissed about the whole dumping children thing, their youngest daughters, Jane and Leanne, alerted the New Zealand authorities and the press, which didn't make John and Lee too happy. The couple fled to Britain, settling in the South Wales village of Beddo. It's weird because, like, so far... Whenever I hear of like a British town or just a town in England anywhere, mm -hmm. it's always like West Hatford, British Shire. I said British Shire. <laughs> Don't edit that out. <laughs> Keep that shit in. But each town has like five different names to it. But these mm -hmm. are like really Bedow. 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 That's what they say when you arrive with no kids. Bedow. <laughs> no, no. One bedroom. That's all we need. Just yeah. one bedroom apartment. <laughs> Flat. One bedroom flat. True. Very true. For all of you foreign listeners in England. I know what's up. Billy knows what's up. <laughs> I suppose. Something like that. I said British Shire for the name of the yeah, town. Yeah, British Shire. He knows about you guys. He thinks everyone calls your town's British Shire. Well, haven't you ever seen National Geographic? And they don't even say Shire. They say sure. What? Like Worcestershire. New Hampshire. Sure. Sure, dude. <laughs> Life seemed to continue on swimmingly for the couple until 1997 when John Sabine disappeared without a trace. But no one filed a missing persons report. Lee told some people that John was a quote-unquote womanizer and had run off with another woman, but told other people that she had to flee from the bastard because he was battering her. Yeah, they'd be like... He's a womanizer. He's probably with some other woman right now. They're like, how do you know that? I'm like, well, there's a story about how we, you know, <laughs> yeah, about how we met. So, 
Well, either way, she continued to collect his pension. An old friend of Lee's, Valerie Chalkley, would later tell the Daily Mail that she received an out-of-the-blue phone call from Lee that same year. Valerie joked during the phone call that it had been so long since she had heard from either Lee or John that one of them must have killed the other one. According to Valerie, Lee remarked, quote, It's funny you should say that. I've killed him. I've battered him with a stone frog, which was at the side of the bed. He was just driving me mad. Every night he would get into bed crying and weeping and saying, You don't fancy me. Okay. All right. Hmm. During a later coroner's inquest, Valerie testified that she didn't take it seriously, that she thought Lee had to have made it up because she hadn't heard anything on the news saying John had been murdered, and that Lee liked to tell not-so-true stories anyway. And normally, like 99.99% of the time, she'd probably be right. But who bases whether this story is valid on, well, I didn't see anything on the news. Yeah. Lee had told people that she used to be a supermodel or a famous cabaret star, or that she was the ex-wife of a millionaire. Basically, a compulsive liar to the highest degree. After the call, Valerie's family turned the story into an inside joke, threatening each other with death by a stone amphibian. Watch out or I'll frog you actually became a household joke to them. Watch out or I'll frog you. Exactly. I'm worldly. You're something. <laughs> Lee would soon begin to tell people about the quote-unquote body in a bag she had in her home, saying it was a fake skeleton for medical training. Oh, she's a, oh she was a nurse, wasn't she? She was training to become a nurse. Okay, fair enough. One neighbor stated at the later inquest that Lee, quote, had mentioned to a number of people there was a skeleton in the communal garden area which she wanted moving. Lee eventually became sick with terminal brain cancer, and a woman named Lynn Williams helped care for her in and out of the hospital. Lee asked Lynn to move the skeleton for her, saying she wanted it moved from her shed in the communal garden to the attic to, quote, scare the new tenants that would move in after she passed away. God damn, she's dark. <laughs> I like her. <laughs> Lynn. And you know you're about to fucking die. Yeah. And you're like, get the skeleton and just have a post set up with a cup of tea at the table. Mm-hmm. Lynn joked that she hoped it wasn't a real body, to which Lee responded, you never know, and wagged her finger at her while smiling. Lee died in October of 2015 at 74 years old. Now, several weeks later, a neighbor of Lee's, Michelle James, thought that the skeleton Lee had mentioned for years would be a great prop used to play a prank. So she went looking for it. She found a bundle wrapped in 40 layers of tinfoil, plastic wrap, old bags, and roofing materials. As Michelle unwrapped it, her hands became smothered in greasy gristle, and she immediately realized it was not a medical skeleton. Well, it, isn't every skeleton a medical skeleton if you want it to be? Guess if you want to stretch that definition. I mean, we all, I have a medical skeleton inside of me. <laughs> me too. Hey, twinsies. Yay, up top. It was the 18-year-old remains of John Sabine. On November 24th, 2015, police began their investigation. The body was confirmed to be John by DNA analysis. He was still wearing his pajamas. The body was said by the coroner to have been, quote-unquote, chemically mummified and was very well preserved, most likely due to the many layers that have been wrapped in over the years. It's funny, like, I'm picturing in my head right now. He's like, you don't fancy me. Oh, British boo-hoo, British boo-hoo. How would they do that? <laughs> and then 
she's, she's later, she's like, all right, here's what's going to fucking happen, dude. I'm going to go into the garden, and I'm going to get the stone frog, and I'm going to come back here. And if you don't change your fucking tune and cowboy the fuck up, I'm going to beat your ass to fucking death. <laughs> he was just like, whimper, whimper, British whimper. Yeah. Like, it's just, you know, <laughs> like, like if there was, like, subtitles underneath my face right now, I'd be like, boo-hoo. And then, like, crying say, Britishly. Crying Britishly. <laughs> <laughs> Right here, he'd be like, American guffaw. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds perfectly delightful. (laughs) This is so cool. Well, since it had been wrapped in so many layers, um, they believed that when the smell of decomposition would start to seep out, that Lee would just go wrap some more plastic around the body to stifle it. And this, in a sense, just kind of helped preserve the body over the years. Hey, silly goof. John's skull was noted to be fractured, the outline of which matched the two-and-a-half-pound green ceramic frog from Lee's garden. There were many fractures, any of which could have been fatal, according to pathologist Dr. Richard Jones, but all were consistent with the bulging eye and leg from the stone frog when it was matched up against the fracture depressions. Lee went to the grave telling everyone about her body in a bag, yet never being taken seriously. The couple's son, Steve, who still resides in New Zealand, you know, where his parents dumped him, has said, quote... He never, he never caught a ride. Yeah. He was like, okay, I guess this I is guess my life I guess this here. is where I'm at now. He said, quote, My father was a good man, a soft-hearted man, but she was a conniving bitch. I could never forgive him for what he did, but I still believe he was manipulated and he fell in love with an evil woman. That was his biggest crime. So... If you guys like that, I liked it. Be sure to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, any of the podcatcher apps that you use. We're available pretty much everywhere. We would love to have some new listeners, have some more interaction. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Martinis and the Macabre. You can find us on Twitter at Martini underscore Macabre. We also have a website, martinisandthemacabre.com. There's a fully playable episode catalog so you can catch up and binge if you'd like. We also have a music page that features music that our son has made that we have started featuring at the end of each episode. We're not going to include that today, but if you come listen to one of our regular episodes, give it a listen till the end to see if you like it. His new album views can be found on iTunes and Spotify and SoundCloud and pretty much anywhere. So listen to that. Please go on iTunes, subscribe to us, rate and review anything you can to kind of help us out. We would totally appreciate it. And we are so happy to be a part of this up and coming podcast network, Murderly, with some fantastic other podcasts. Of course, you're going to be listening to all of them through all of this too with their little mini-sodes. So hopefully you enjoy them too. You give Murderly a try and you give Martinis and the Macabre a try. So once again, thank you guys for listening. And if you'd like to join us, then stay safe and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Um, Bye. I am your host, Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we welcome you to Murder and Such. We are a podcast about murders, the macabre, true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. We are a bi-weekly, sometimes more often podcast that discuss a range of disgusting topics and sprinkle in some crappy jokes and a ton of foul language. 
We are not professionals by any stretch of the imagination, and we are not recommended for children, and our opinions are strictly our own, and do not reflect the thoughts of our new network company, Murderly, podcasts to die for. Murderly is a new network that hosts a slew of fantastic true crime shows that cover anything and everything that will quench that true crime thirst that so many of us have. Kind of like Jim Jones at a punch party. (laughs) We will toss out F-bombs like a seven-year-old who just found out what fuck means and is a bad word. So again, no kids. No kids. Probably not the kind of show you want to have playing over your speakers at work. We have heavily researched each topic ourselves and don't rely on our fans or friends to do our work for us. Nope. But hey, you get the gist of it. So let's do a little mini episode and give you a taste of what we have to offer. And typically, in the fashion of murder and such, Haley and I go back and forth, and we pick a subject that we personally would like to talk about, and we kind of have a little bit of storytelling. But since this is going to be kind of a small episode, welcoming you guys to our show, it's actually going to be my pick, and I'm going to tell you a little bit from a story up in Canada. This particular case will be abridged, but all of the facts and grisly details will be included. So, here goes. This story takes place in Manitoba. You may have heard the case of 22-year-old Timothy McLean crossing paths with 40-year-old Vincent Lee. Timothy McLean was born on October 3rd, 1985, outside of Winnipeg in the town of Eli, Manitoba. He was an outgoing, social, and loving man as he grew up. He could make friends anywhere that he went, and he could speak to anyone about pretty much any subject matter. Very much like myself. Kind of. He was also a big fan of the group ICP, and when he was older, he managed to get a Marvin the Martian tattoo on his left bicep and had a spider tattooed on his right shoulder. Seemed like a pretty decent individual to pretty much anybody. I mean, you socialize with a lot of people with your job. I do, you know, and I also been to the gathering a couple times myself, so I already relate to this guy pretty well. (laughs) Oh, God. I forgive you. His restlessness and thirst for adventure had led him on a path that might see as bizarre, but Tim thought of it as pretty exciting. That's when his friend, Tiffany LaBelle, had proposed him an offer that he couldn't pass up. She had invited him for a summer trip to become a carny at a local carnival that he fell in love with. He could meet people of all walks of life, manage his own game arena, and build a camaraderie and friendship with some of the most solid people in his life. He was living his own personal dream, traveling with friends, recording his travels on a vlog, and you can't fault anybody for that. He did this for a few years and even took the Greenhound bus to many places, most likely so he could talk to other bus riders and be just as charismatic and personable as he could be with complete strangers. You know, and I've been on a Greyhound bus. I took a 23-hour bus ride to Denver and back about about six years ago. I was like 19, 20. It was one. It was amazing. Like there were a couple weirdos and like we did have to pull over a couple times because there was like people drinking on the bus. But getting to sit next to people like I made friends that I'm, I still follow on Facebook. Like right. I met some girl that was hitchhiking and she had just saved an owl previous like on the previous <laughs> bus ride. Bring it on the bus. Yeah, she didn't have it with her, but I was like, that's so cool. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. But yeah, I I see this guy's, you know, I can relate to him wanting to be on the bus. Like, I love taking the Greyhound, and not everybody Uh, does, but I I couldn't do it. I'd I'd need to be drinking on the bus to get through a trip like that. Oh, it's great. I had a great time. Not to mention, I'd probably eat some shitty Taco Bell, and then they'd have to stop the bus all the time if there wasn't a bathroom on board. Nope. Yep, they only stop at McDonald's. Only stop at McDonald's. That just just invites diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. 
Well, when Tim was 22, he finally set in motion a plan to finally move and settle into British Columbia. When wanting to travel home to Winnipeg, he hopped on bus 1170, much like he had done many times before. But this would be the last one that he ever took. Vincent Lee was born on April 30th of 1968. He was a Chinese immigrant from the town of Dandong, Liaoning, China. He had graduated with a bachelor's degree in computer science from the University of Wuhan Institute of Technology. He had immigrated to Canada on June 11th of 2001, and he had become a citizen on November 7th of 2006. Unfortunately, Vincent was diagnosed with severe schizophrenia in 2005 and had social troubles, even just talking to people or trying to keep a coherent conversation. He was unfortunately not medicated at the time, and while we fully support those people seeking help for their mental well-being, Vincent did not take that opportunity. He also had a wife in Canada as well. About a month before the incident occurred, a sign of Vincent's anger came out when he had a huge outburst with coworkers at a Walmart store in which they ultimately fired him for. Vincent kept saying that he was hearing voices from God, which a lot of people found off-putting, but for some reason, Vincent found it necessary to go off from the town of Edmonton in a Greyhound bus destined for Winnipeg, only carrying the bare essentials, a few bags of clothes, a couple of snacks, his laptop, and a hunting knife that he had purchased. When his bus had a stop on July 29th of 2008 at about 6 o'clock p.m. in Erickson, Manitoba, he sat on a park bench for a ridiculous amount of time. He was unflinching and stoic. He didn't sleep at all that night and just sat on the bench. A bystander said that they had saw a man sitting on a park bench at about 3 o'clock a.m. the morning of July 30th. When the sun broke, he offered a 15-year-old named Darren Beatty his laptop for only 60 bucks which is actually really, really cheap back in 2008 money for a laptop. It was after he sold the laptop that he decided to hop on a different bus towards Winnipeg. Bus 1170. Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun. This was the same bus that Tim McLean was on. After a lengthy portion of the trip with Vincent sitting towards the front, still stoic, unflinching, and wearing sunglasses the entire time, he had decided to move backwards towards the rear of the Greyhound finally deciding on sitting next to Tim, who was drifting in and out of sleep. At the same time, Vincent was still hearing his voices from God, but they were also telling him that someone evil was out to get him and that he had to take action. This was now nightfall, and he was exerting more erratic behaviors and even giving a lot of the other 37 passengers on board a bad vibe. Yeah, I've definitely, when you spend that much time on a bus with the same people, you kind of pick up yeah, on who's doing you what. you read people. And that's like one of the people when I took the bus to Denver, one guy ended up getting kicked off because he was drinking and the people around him, like he was talking on the phone, but he wasn't talking to anybody. He was being very erratic. Weird. Similar. And then he was like drinking out of a little plastic vodka okay. bottle. Sure. And all the other cus- or all the other passengers around him ended up going up to the bus driver and was like, yo, this dude's acting really weird. He's yeah. going into his phone. He has alcohol on him. And that's when the bus pulled over and was like, we had to stop and wait for the police to come. Like he got kicked off the bus. They took away his alcohol and then the police came and took him away. So I definitely feel these other passengers. Just kind of feeling a presence and yeah. something off-putting. You spend that much time with people on a little quiet bus. You kind yeah. of pick up on what's happening. Oh, 110%. But the weird thing was, it was at this point that God was speaking more to Vincent and told him that he had to kill somebody before they killed him first. That somebody being Tim McLean. 
So it's customary on murder and such for us to give you a very grisly detail of the events that happened. Mm -hmm. We tell the facts and the events, but we always have respect for the victims and others who may have been involved in the crime. You might also notice if you listen to our podcast, Hunter likes to pick the really gruesome stories, mm -hmm. the very detailed, mm -hmm. like brutal shit. And yep. I'm the one that picks like the quirky stories yeah. that are very weird and like people do don't like, necessarily know. You do like a kidnapping and a murder or like a traveling corpse or something like that. You know, the typical <laughs> the, stuff. And I'm like, stuff. nah, how wet can we make this bucket of nasty? <laughs> so you've been warned. As robotic as a human could possibly be with sunglasses on at night. Vincent pulled out his hunting knife from his bag. He turned to his right, and he began stabbing Tim McLean, who was fast asleep. Onlookers watched in horror as he continually stabbed Tim over and over and over with no regard for human life. People screamed for the bus to stop, which finally did, and people flooded out of the doors of the Greyhound bus. Tim tried to make a jump over Vincent, but fell short in the aisle of the bus. More people ran off the bus until it was finally unloaded except for Tim still laying in the aisle while Vincent kept plunging his knife into the body of Tim. A bystander by the name of Chris Ogwire was flagged down by a passenger who had told him that someone was being stabbed to death on the bus. He instructed them to call the RCMP. He grabbed a pole from the back of his truck and his passenger and then boarded the bus and found Vincent still stabbing Tim. Vincent was empty, much like you would imagine a madman performing such a heinous crime would be. People claimed that he seemed robotic, like a machine that was intent on killing, kind of like you would see in, like, The Terminator. Well, this shocked Chris, but this isn't the end. Chris then saw Vincent continue to stab the obviously dead Tim and took the hunting knife to his throat and started hacking away at the ligaments, spinal cord, trachea, and flesh that held Tim's head to his shoulders. At that time, Vincent stood up with his knife in one hand and Tim's decapitated head in the other and started walking towards Chris. Obviously fucking frightened, Chris backed out of the bus and barricaded the door shut so Vincent couldn't escape. Vincent had started slashing at the barricaded door multiple times and even shoved the decapitated head up against the door to Chris and then started pacing up and down the aisle, shoving Tim's head towards the windows, showing the passengers what he had done. At this time, the RCMP showed up at the scene, but for some reason they would not board the bus. This took place over the course of a couple of hours while the police sat and relayed messages to dispatch of what he was doing at the time, but they would not make any moves against Vincent. But the voice kept telling him to do things, such as dismembering the body even further, so Vincent went back to Tim's corpse. He had slashed through Tim's cheeks, much like you would see the Joker from Batman, used the knife to help dislocate his jaw gouged out each of his eyeballs, had sliced off both of his ears, cut off his nose, he even pulled the tongue from his mouth and cut that off as far back as the knife would let him. He continued on the remains and started hacking away at his hands, fingers, his feet, made a lengthwise slash down the torso, and then he started to cannibalize the body. Vincent had managed to consume almost a third of Tim's heart 
It was after this that Vincent had enough time to completely mutilate Tim, scatter his remains around the entire bus, and stuff his nose, one of his ears, and even his tongue in his pockets that Vincent thought of an escape plan to jump out the rear window of the bus in which he was quickly apprehended as he left the knife at the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm never going to get on a bus again. I was going to say, and that's why I don't take the bus. <laughs> if you could do this shit on a fucking plane, more power to you. But usually, there's a marshal on board. No, you know what? You know what? I'm changing that. I'm never going to take a bus to Canada. <laughs> oh, yeah. See? All these Canadians are real fucking nice. Too nice. Until, like, yeah. <laughs> fucking have. God. <laughs> they should have shot him. Canada has a preservation of life policy. And maybe they could sense that something was mentally not right. Because obviously, we we don't we don't dog on people for mental health. We actually like helping people and supporting people who know that they don't have something right. But you don't see this on a normal person, even in like a scorned lover kind of way. This shit usually doesn't happen. It comes from somebody who is very, very, very mentally disturbed. People don't act like that normally. Oh no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, it's that's my my idea about. of a fun Saturday night, but you know, <laughs> I don't go on the Greyhound bus. You just do it in the comfort of your own home. Yes, <laughs> yes. I I bring people over like you. Oh, no! Oh. <laughs> You've been hacked apart in movies, though. I have. You're right. Yeah, I'm used to it. <laughs> so the police took him in and saw that there was something definitely wrong. They obviously had the murder caught red-handed and dead to rights. Vincent had finally snapped out of his manic state and personally wanted to atone for his crime. He wanted an execution, considering he finally felt the gravity of the grisly act that he had committed against an innocent person just looking to go home. But Canada has no death penalty system, much like we have in certain states here in America. Even if you would have got, con- even to get convicted for murder, there's no option for the death penalty. Nope, you won't be executed. See, those Canadians are too nice. Damn, man. damn Canadians, eh? Christ's got to stop being so nice up there. (laughs) However, considering his manic state, the authorities had decided to commit him to a mental institution in Winnipeg a week after the murder. But on March 3rd of 2009, the Canadian legal system found him not criminally responsible for murder by a unanimous vote. Instead of being sent to prison, he was sent to the Selkirk Mental Health Center. This is what pissed off... A lot of Canadians, especially the family and friends of Timothy McLean. Multiple lawsuits have been brought against the Greyhound Bus Company, the RCMP, the Government of Canada, the Attorney General of Canada, and even multiple lawsuits against Vincent himself, some of which were eventually dropped. Now, in February of 2016, Vincent was looking to have his name changed, which he eventually did have it changed to Will Baker, but was also seeking a discharge from the mental institution, which he was eventually granted on February 10th of 2017. Vincent, or Will Baker, was a free man and would not be held responsible for the killing of an outgoing young man who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time time okay so never befriend anybody named will baker will baker Um, if you get that on facebook you hit decline you hit decline and you don't tell him where you're going on it's usually one of those facebook profiles like it's a really generic name and it's like a person who uploaded their photos like 36 minutes ago but you have that one really dumb friend who's like well they're hot i'm just gonna add them and And then that that's how the fucking russians hack us (laughs) now tim mclean senior which is tim's father 
had gotten a tattoo on his chest of Tim Jr.'s portrait, which was very tastefully done, but the family and friends of Tim McLean still will have no closure, no answers, and nobody to pay for the murder of Tim McLean. Now, like I said, a big moral to this story that we always touch on is if that you're not feeling right, you can always talk to somebody. There is always help out there, and there's no shame in seeking help if you don't feel okay in the headspace. I mean, even talk to us. Talk to us. Even in that case, everybody struggles, but there is always somebody willing to help. If you need help finding any services in your area, you're always welcome to reach out to us, and we can try to find some people that will help you. We have always and will always mean that. We are your friends. We are your friends that talk about really gross stuff. And throw a lot of fucking F-bombs out there. (laughs) But there you have it. That's a taste of things to come with murder and such. We thank you guys for listening. We thank you for sticking with us. If you would like to go ahead and follow us, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Murder and Such. If you have any cases that you would like us to personally cover ourselves, you can email us at murderandsuch at gmail.com. And Haley, if our listeners would like to follow you, how can they find you? So I am on Instagram as Haley.jay. Hora. Like horror. horror movies and not horror. Horror. Uh, horror. Like scary movies. <laughs> and then I am on Facebook as Haley J A Y Madison. Uh, oh. it is a pri- private profile, but if you guys send me a message saying you're a fan, I'll totally add you. Absolutely. And if you'd like to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, PlayStation Network, and Snapchat at Huntor27. But again, we thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the other shows that are on the Murderly Network, and we will talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Welcome to Las Mordia. I'm Lee, and this is a Murderly Minisode. On May 23, 1966, an assistant professor of aerospace engineering at The Ohio State University was driving to meet a friend for an early lunch when he heard on the university radio station that a research professor in his department had been found dead earlier that morning. In the mid-60s, the aeronautical and astronautical engineering department at OSU was vibrant and cutting-edge, but it was also quite small. So not knowing who the victim was, but knowing it was someone he was acquainted with, Dr. Gregorick turned his car around and headed back to the university. When he arrived back to the department office, he learned that the identity of the victim was his friend and colleague, Lauren Bollinger. Dr. Bollinger was killed in the early hours of Monday, May 23rd, in a room adjoining his office in downtown Columbus. He was shot five times, once behind the right ear, once through the left ear, once through the center of the back, once through the back of the left hip, and one bullet creased the top of his head. Ballistics were able to recover one of the bullets and determined that the murder weapon was a twenty-five caliber pistol not found at the scene. The victim's wallet and credit cards were not found. No one in the bar-slash-restaurant located below his office heard anything. 
An employee in the Bureau of Motor Vehicles office located behind the building was the only person to report hearing any gunshots. The murder of Lauren Bollinger was actually the second mysterious death of a Columbus resident that month. Earlier that May, a woman named Lisa Davenport from the nearby affluent neighborhood of Upper Arlington had been shot to death and found in the trunk of an abandoned car in the small town of Finley, Ohio. Bollinger, 40 years old at the time of his death, was planning to leave the university the following month to join the private sector. He had rented the office downtown as a place to do research for his upcoming consulting work with the federal government and to write for a niche publication called Instrument Society of America Transactions. Some of his research at OSU was classified, which led to brief speculation that he was killed in an attempt to steal his work. The FBI was called in because of this possible motive. Remember, this was all occurring at the height of America's Cold War with Russia, and any perceived international or federal security risk was high priority. This was, after all, before the United States won the space race in 1969 by putting men on the moon. However, the locked cabinet in which Bollinger kept those secure documents was untouched, and all of the files were accounted for. The connection just wasn't there. A year earlier, Bollinger had been involved in a rocket fuel explosion caused by a colleague's negligence, a fact that's often glossed over or outright argued in faculty club conversations about the incident. The accident badly damaged Bollinger's hands. After a series of surgeries and physical therapies, Bollinger regained the full use of his hands. According to colleagues, by the time he died, he was able to lift things, drive a car, and type, but he avoided shaking hands with people. Some reports state that he had sued the university for negligence, but I was unable to confirm the veracity of those claims. Bollinger was known to his associates as a man who focused the majority of his time and attention on work-related matters, and as such didn't spend much time dating. Former colleagues remember him as someone who had embraced his bachelorhood and didn't have many friends outside of his OSU associates. When the investigation led police to question employees and customers of the bar below his office, They were surprised to learn that Bollinger had allegedly been seen in the establishment with Lisa Davenport, who had been killed earlier in the month. Despite multiple witnesses stating they positively remembered Bollinger and Davenport together in the bar a handful of times that year, no one who knew Dr. Bollinger was able to confirm that the two knew each other. Nor could the murders be linked. Davenport was also shot, but it occurred in an open field and the four bullets that went through her were never recovered. There was a connection that couldn't be argued, however. In 1965, two employees of local service stations in different parts of Columbus had been murdered in attempted robberies. Another service station employee had been robbed, shot, and left for dead in another attack. The man survived, and the doctors were unable to remove the bullets from the man's head. He was, however, able to provide a description of his attacker. The police didn't put much credence in the description because of how general it was. All four victims, the three service station employees and Lauren Bollinger, were shot execution-style at close range from behind. Fifty-two years later, the Columbus Police Department isn't any closer to solving the murder of Lauren Bollinger. When I contacted the records department for police reports and evidence photos, the young officer on the phone was astonished that someone would be interested in a case from so long ago. His reaction was indicative of the attention paid to this particular series of cold cases. And why not? 
Columbus has well over 100 homicides annually, with a clearance rate of only 47%, according to a study published by the Washington Post on June 6th of this year. The long-forgotten crimes of a time before Neil Armstrong was a household name just don't have a place in the milieu of today. But not everyone has forgotten. Remember the gentleman who had been driving to lunch when he heard the news of his friend's murder? Well, that was my father. At 87 years old, my dad has lost a number of friends and colleagues to the ravages of accident, disease, and age. Several months ago, he looked at me with tear-filled eyes as he told me about his former colleague and how shocked he was and how hurt and confused he is to this day, and above all, how much he misses his friend. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out all of the other amazing podcasts on the Murderly Network. Murderly, podcasts to die for. And I'm Rochelle. And, and we're, we're from, from Nature vs. Narcissism, Narcissism. A true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests. Since I've always been fascinated by true crime, I wanted to delve deeper into the criminal mind and discuss why these criminals commit these vile acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was it just plain old narcissism? Join us every week for a brand new episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and Podbean. Don't, Don't call, call the, the cops! cops. Bye! Bye. Welcome back to Nature vs. Narcissism. I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle. And we are now part of... Murderly! Yay! It's a network for true crime podcasts. Pretty cool, pretty cool. Very cool. I guess we're part of the Cool Kids Club now. Yep. (laughs) We're on a network. Big time. Yes. (laughs) So you guys will be hearing a series of short stories in this episode. It's going to be from other true crime podcasts that are now part of the same network so you guys will get a extra dose of true crime just what i've always wanted so for our story it's actually a local one for us yeah kind of crazy i remember it happening uh in 2006 
and it was actually kind of scary. I don't know. You said you don't really remember. I don't remember it. It's like Glen Estee is literally right around the corner from us right now. And I went to high school in Amelia, so it was, what, a few miles away maybe? Yeah. <laughs> and now they merged the schools. <laughs> they did. So weird. Yeah, they built that new big school. Yeah, and I think that's strange because they were rivals for freaking decades. Mm-hmm. And now they're like together. And I'm like, yeah. It's what are they, the wolves? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to cause a lot of fights. I think there was a fight, actually, the first day of school in the lunchroom. Why do you know that? It was on the news. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. It just popped up one day. <laughs> I'm glad you keep up on your high school drama. Well, it was like the first day that that freaking school was open. Okay. I might cut that. Because I don't know why I know that. Okay. So this one, like I said, happened in 2006. Um, it was in the Glen Essie, Withamsville area. I, I live in Withamsville, so it was like literally right around the corner. And the kid, Larry Muggridge, I think I'm butchering his name, but it sounds right. He was 15 years old. He would apparently walk through Charles Martin's yard all the time. And he would tell him, like, hey, get off my lawn. Like, one of those old men. Get off my lawn. Yeah. And he's just walking out, like, get the fuck off my grass, man. He, according to all the neighbors, he loved his fucking grass. Like, that was his shit. Like, he went out there with a yardstick to measure the height of his grass. <laughs> he would go out there, I think they said, like, four or five times a week to do different yard work just to keep up on it. Which, when you're older, you really don't have much more to do, I guess. But he loved it that much. And the um, 15-year-old Larry apparently went across his lawn a couple times that day. And he, you know, yelled at him and told him go the fuck away and he didn't and Charles the 66 year old man came out and shot him right in the chest and then called the cops on himself oh god normally I would say don't call the cops but this is a kid (laughs) call the cops (laughs) he when the 911 dispatcher got on the phone he said I just killed a kid she said you just killed a kid yes ma'am just like that calm as can be And he explained to them, I shot him with, and I can't find the audio anymore, but he either said a goddamn shotgun or a fucking shotgun. But he was pissed. He's like, I'm being harassed by him and his parents for five years, and today I just blew up. Not okay. That's not how you handle it. It was a 410 shotgun. He shot him twice in the chest, and I guess he ended up laying falling down in his own yard so I'm, I'm assuming they were neighbors like yeah. they were relatively close to each other and they ended up charging him with murder because they said that some of the jurors couldn't decide whether he was he premeditated it but it later came out that he actually did premeditate the murder because he got his 410 gauge shotgun and waited more than three hours really for Larry to come back across his yard to shoot him wow like what the fuck dude so he it only took him four, like less than four hours to convict him. He was going to get so many years in prison before he was eligible for parole. So I think it was like 18 years, and then he would have been 85 years old before the, he could be paroled. So April 29th, 2007, he threatened to kill the kid's parents. So he said, you know, if they let me out, I'm going to kill so-and-so and so-and-so, which were Larry's parents. Why would he say that? 
he's a fucking idiot, apparently. Like, that's just going to get you in more trouble in the long run. Like, yeah. you're threatening other people's lives now. He also, so the the prosecutor at the time was Daniel Breyer, and he said that he wanted everybody to know how dangerous Martin was, like, by making statements like that. He kept a journal that says that he disliked that family, and then he introduced it as evidence in the trial and made it available to the jury. So that obviously didn't help his case any. So I don't know what else was in that journal, but he gunned down a 15-year-old. He didn't even think about it, think twice about it. He's just like, you know what, I'm just I'm fed up with it. So he, the prosecutor said, you know, if he gets out, he's just going to finish the job. We can't let him out. He needs to stay in here forever. So he, he was in jail for a while until uh, August 7th. In 2009, he committed suicide in the Lebanon Correctional Institution, which you you know where that's at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they wouldn't say how he did it, and I even researched a little bit more before we started recording, and there's no information about how he killed himself, just that he killed himself in his cell. So he pled not guilty by reason of insanity, but by him stating that he just blew up, and then him sitting on his porch for three hours, that's enough premeditation to right. me. Like, yeah. there's no way. So that was, you know, just for him to be able to get a jury trial. But he said that the teenager knew how much he cared for his lawn and he provoked him on purpose. <laughs> that's his reason. That's not okay. Well, he did tell him to stop. He did. And he did tell him to stop, you know, just hours before. But at the same time, it's a fucking grass. <laughs> People walk through grass. Is he going to shoot every deer or squirrel that touches his grass? Maybe he did. Maybe he ate them. You never know. So, what do you think about him? Mm. (laughs) Mmm. I couldn't find anything on his mental health, so... Oh. I'm going to say narcissism. Yeah. He just seems like a douche. Yeah. (laughs) Nature, nurture, narcissism, douchism. There you go, douchism. Douchism. (laughs) But I don't know. I thought that one was kind of eerie just because I remember I was in school during that time. What would have been a better solution to the grass problem? A fence, maybe? A fence. Weird. But if I find that audio, or if anybody can find that audio, freaking share it with us, because I need to hear that 911 call. <laughs> Can't find it anywhere. So, welcome to the Murderly Network. Yay. Okay, that was our story. Really quick, to the point. Local. Hey, till next time, call the cops if you shoot somebody in your yard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, don't call the cops. Mm-mm. <laughs> Bye. Bye. The following audio may contain graphic descriptions of violence or audio clips of real-life distressing moments. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark.
Henry McCabe was a 32-year-old man who lived in Minnesota and worked as an auditor for the Minnesota Department of Revenue. He was 5 foot 11 inches tall and weighed about 175 pounds, with brown eyes and short black hair. Friends and family described him as friendly and outgoing. Reports online state that he was going through a bad phase in his life and had been reprimanded at work. Henry had also bounced a check for rent. To add to his troubles, he had recently separated from his wife, Corrine McCabe. Corrine was in California with their children, two girls, a 19-month-old and a 10-year-old. September 6, 2015. Henry joins at least two friends, Calvin Johnson and William Kennedy, for a night of drinking. A lot of drinking. During the course of the night, he was so openly intoxicated that a friend claims that he took his wallet from him to cut him off. It has to be said that I've never heard of someone taking a wallet to cut someone off before, but I suppose it's possible. Early reports state that he's last seen at Pavlitsky's on 65, but later reports state Club C'est La Vie. I'm not sure if the updated version is correct or if reporters are getting it confused with the fact that a charity drive was later hosted for McCabe at Club C'est La Vie. It could be possible that he went to both that night. Either way, Calvin Johnson sees Henry leaving with William Kennedy. 2.15 a.m. According to William Kennedy, Henry asked to be dropped off at the Super America gas station. What happens from here out is when things start to get a little unclear. At 2.28 a.m., Henry's final call is placed to Corrine McCabe, and a two-minute voicemail is left. What you're about to hear is disturbing. The sounds made are indescribable. If you feel this may upset you, to a great degree, then I suggest either skipping ahead or stopping the episode. During the phone call, Corrine McCabe calls Tim Barber, Henry's biological brother. The voicemail picks up, and the last two minutes of the call are recorded. What you've heard is only some clips taken from the news report. The full two-minute call hasn't been released. It is reported that there is a voice before the call ends that firmly states, Stop it. September 7, 2015. Barber doesn't check his voicemail until the next day. And after listening to what he describes as his brother crying, Barber files a missing person report with the Moundsview Police Department. Henry did not call in or show up for his auditor position that day. Corrine is interviewed in what is the first media report. She tells reporters, He was spending time with some friends that he hadn't seen in some time. And when I spoke with him, they were getting ready to leave. September 15th, 2015. The police conduct a search of the Super America and surrounding area, but find nothing. September 19th, 2015. A second search around Super America is conducted and led by police. Now teams of people travel the 35-minute long walk between the gas station where he was last seen and his home. September 26th, 2015. 
After viewing cell phone records, the police find that the pings show that Henry McCabe was not dropped off at the Super America. A third search is led by investigators that instead focuses on Creekview Park in New Brighton. The police say the last call made from Henry's cell phone pinged off a tower near Silver Lake Road, a Mississippi street in New Brighton. This confirms the location that Kennedy gave the police was not accurate. William Kennedy speaks out. He had been receiving attacks on social media. William tells reporters that prior to September 6th, he and McCabe never hung out together. He also tells reporters that McCabe knew about him from back home in Liberia. William Kennedy may have been the last person to see Henry McCabe. November 2nd, 2015. Henry McCabe's body is found in New Brighton Lake. The body was found by a kayaker, partially submerged, and near some brush, and identified as Henry the day after. There were no marks or injuries to his body. The coroner ruled that his death was a result of drowning. Police have not ruled out the possibility of suicide due to Henry's personal and financial issues. Now that we've got the facts of the case out of the way, let's discuss the elephant in the room. The voicemail. One of the issues presented when discussing the voicemail is that the only recording available to the public is what little you can hear from the KSTP televised news report. You can easily find this report online and give the full news clip a watch. The problem is that to me it seems like the KSTP are doing their best to drum up a scary story. There's a lot of talking over what little of the voicemail they play, and the whole thing is read with this typical cheesy news reporter voice. I feel that KSTP were very selective in which parts of the voicemail they played in an attempt to boost ratings. The presentation of the story has gone a long way to bring wild speculation about what occurred during the voicemail. The most outlandish being that Henry McCabe was attacked by a Bigfoot. I've even seen strangers posting this theory on Henry's Facebook memorial page and even arguing with his friends and family. For those that would do that kind of thing, please don't. The biggest argument I've seen for the Bigfoot theory is that the sounds being made in the call are inhuman. That a person simply couldn't make those sounds. First off, if Henry drowned, there could have been some electrical damage being done to the phone that caused some weird sound issues. I'm sure we've all been on the phone and you get that strange robot voice effect thing that happens to you or the caller. I'm also going to posit that a person can make those sounds. It has been noted that Henry had a heavy night of drinking. I've been heavily intoxicated myself, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have been as well. And during moments of clarity, I've noted that some of the groans that have come out when dealing with the extreme intoxication were very guttural and odd-sounding. Also, if intoxication is part of what led to his death, these groans could have been very extreme. To help disprove this theory, that people just don't make these sounds and it must be a Bigfoot. I'm going to play an audio clip. The audio clip may be considered disturbing for some, so as usual, listener discretion is advised. The sound you are about to hear 
is from an 18-year-old who drank too much moonshine with friends. I look good in the camera. Travis. Travis, listen to me. The 18-year-old's friends, not aware that his situation is dire, can be heard laughing in the background. The teenager died later that night from alcohol poisoning. The shouting and whooping sounds have been interpreted as his body's emergency response to dying. So yeah, I think we can rule out Bigfoot. Now that we've got that insanity out of the way, let's get to the reasonable theories. The first most represented theory is that Henry McCabe was murdered. The two supporting pieces of evidence is the stop it heard before the call ends and the shadiness of William Kennedy's timeline. I'm not ruling this out, but I do think the lack of marks on the body seems to hurt this theory. You would think there would be at least some bruising on the body. I also think this rules out the chance for animal attacks. Another theory is that Henry committed suicide. Some web sleuths online believe that the stop it heard at the end of the call was Henry pulling himself together before intentionally drowning himself. They also point to the fact that Henry was not doing well in his personal and professional life. I initially found this absurd, but upon doing further research, I found that suicide by drowning is not out of the question. For example, in Newfoundland, within the years 1987 to 1991, 8.9% of all suicides were by drowning, and he knew he couldn't keep himself afloat. If Henry had intentionally got into his inebriated state, and he knew he couldn't keep himself afloat, then it's not impossible. The last theory, and the one that I subscribe to, is that Henry fell into the water and accidentally drowned due to his intoxicated state. I do think the local news piece has done a lot to cause everything to get blown out of proportion. The story ran for television just comes across as super hokey and like cheap National Enquirer reporting. I know people seem to struggle with the idea of accidental drowning, but it is the third leading cause of unintentional injury death worldwide. In 2012 alone, 117 persons died from drowning. Most drowning victims were men. I think that the stop it could have been Henry pulling himself together after deep sobbing due to his recent woes. I also think he could have intentionally turned his phone off to be alone. It's obviously not clear at what point he could have fell in. To keep things balanced, I think the key piece of missing evidence in this case is why Henry ended up so far away from his intended destination. No matter what theory is correct, I think it is important we remember Henry McCabe for who he was in life. Henry had a strong presence in the Liberian community, You can find passionate speeches he gave online. No matter what he thought before his fateful night, it's obvious those around him loved and cared for him. I think the community unifying for his search and the continued remembrance after his death is evidence enough of that. Henry McCabe is survived by two children and one wife. Minnesota Community Policing Services is offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those potentially responsible for his death. If you have any information, then please call 
651-485-9211. All calls will be confidential and you will remain anonymous. Obscura, a true crime podcast is released every Wednesday. Subscribe if you'd like to continue hearing quality content. I'm Tashana, and we're from Something's Not Right. David Aikman was born to a farming family in Anvil, Kentucky in 1915. He lived in a community rich with banjo players, including his father, so naturally he took an interest in the music early on. At seven, he built his instrument from a shoebox and thread. At 12, he traded two prize bantams he'd raised for a banjo. When he wasn't doing work building roads and planting trees, David played banjo at dances and had a reputation as a talented musician. He got a spot in musician Asa Martin's band after he won a talent contest that Martin was judging. During a show, Martin blanked out on David's name and introduced him as String Beans, a nod to David's physique. The nickname stuck. Initially, David only played banjo in Martin's group, but he eventually picked up singing and comedic duties as well. Throughout the 30s, he played with various musical groups, had a stint as a semi-pro baseball player, and broadcast on a Lexington, Kentucky radio station. During David's time as a baseball player, he met Bill Monroe. Monroe learned that David was also a talented musician and comedian, and in the early 40s, he was invited to become a member of Monroe's group. He also worked as part of a comedy duo, String Beans and Cousin Wilbur, with Willie Egbert Westbrook during this time, and they would share billing with Monroe's group. After three years performing with Monroe, David left the group in 1945 and was replaced by Earl Scruggs. Also in 1945, David married Estelle Stanfield and began working with Grandpa Jones in 1946. Jones was also an old-time banjo player with a comedic flair. Should I know Bill Monroe? Does that name I should? He is a very famous bluegrass guitar player. Oh. Guitar. And I feel like he probably played the mandolin, too. Okay. I'm not I'm not good on my history. That's Nashville. okay. I grew I grew up with this stuff cuz of my dad. Yeah, see, we didn't, I mean, to be honest, like, I grew up here, but it's not really something we were listening to at my house, so how did I know? No. Yeah, Bill Monroe, he's a pretty big deal. In the late 1940s, David became a regular on the Grand Ole Opry and began wearing his iconic costume, and that was a long night shirt with really short pants that, he got those from Little Jimmy Dickens. Who's a tiny man. Yeah, yeah. And those were worn so low that he would look like he was super tall, but with really short legs. Grand Ole Opry star Uncle Dave Macon took David under his wing and shared jokes, stories, and songs with him. But Macon died in 1952. 
And by then, David was well known as Stringbean, and he was a big deal at the Opry throughout the 50s. He didn't start recording on his own, so not as part of someone else's act until the early 1960s. People enjoyed his music and comedy, and he recorded seven albums between 1961 and 1972. His songs, Chewing Gum and I Wonder Where Wanda Went, were hits. I wonder where Wanda went. Me too. She's been gone a long time. Oh, to circle back to Bill Monroe, I don't know why I thought he played both, but I just, to confirm, it's mandolin. That's what he's known for. Like, he's a famous mandolin player. Still an Opry star, in 1969, David became a founding member of the cast of the TV show Hee Haw, along with his buddy Grandpa Jones. According to DavidAikman.com, he became an instant hit, his lanky figure and bewildered expression coupled with self-deprecating one-liners making him one of the most popular members of the cast. He frequently did a segment on the show where he read a letter from home. His friends would ask if he had gotten a letter and he would say he kept it right next to his heart, checking for it in his overalls pocket. Of course, it wouldn't be there, and he'd have to check all his pockets until he finally found it, usually in his hip pocket. There was another regular routine on the show where he portrayed a scarecrow in a cornfield who would deliver one-liners, eventually being shouted down by a crow that sat on his shoulder. Okay, so was it just his voice in the scarecrow, or was he dressed up? I couldn't get a sense of that when I was... I feel like I remember it being, because I used to watch you all the time with my dad, I feel like it was him. Like, okay. he was dressed like a that, scarecrow, and then there would be this, like, crow That's kind of what on I his thought. When we get to the end of this, I'll explain why I was a little bit confused. And I guess I probably could have looked up a picture and figured <laughs> it out. But, you know, why do that? Sure. The Aikmans lived a modest and frugal lifestyle in a small cabin near Ridgetop, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. The only thing that would demonstrate that they might have some money was their Cadillac. They weren't really wealthy by entertainment industry standards, but they were doing well financially. Having lived through the Great Depression, David didn't trust banks with his money, so the rumor that went around was that he kept large sums of cash on hand. On November 10th, 1973, David and his wife Estelle came home after an Opry performance and interrupted a burglary. The burglar shot and killed David right away and chased down Estelle, shooting her in the back of the head. Their bodies were found the following day by Grandpa Jones. That fact always makes me so sad. An investigation led police to cousins John A. Brown and Marvin Douglas Brown, both 23, when the murders were committed. The story shaped up this way at trial. The two men had been ransacking David and Estelle's cabin when the couple came home. Estelle screamed when they shot String Bean and ran. They shot her in the front yard as she begged for her life. During trial, each of the Brown cousins blamed the other for the murders. The cousins were convicted of both murders. In the end, the Browns' take from the robbery was just a chainsaw and some guns. In 1996, 23 years after David and Estelle were killed, $20,000 in rotted, unusable cash was discovered behind a brick in the chimney of the Aikman's cabin. That 20000 would translate to more than $108,000 in today's money. Marvin Brown appealed his convictions and lost. 
After that, he was interviewed by Larry Britton of the Nashville Banner and admitted his participation in the burglary, but claimed that John Brown fired the shots that killed David and Estelle. As far as law is concerned, this would still make Marvin guilty of murder even if he didn't fire the shots that killed them, because the burglary he admitted to resulted in death. Marvin Douglas Brown died of natural causes in 2003 at Brushy Mountain Prison, and he's buried there. Johnny Brown was paroled on November 3rd, 2014, almost exactly 41 years after the murders. He was offered a custodial job at a local megachurch by the pastor there, Maury Davis, a man who did time for slaughtering and almost decapitating Sunday school teacher Joella Lyles in 1975. David and Estelle are buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Gardens in Goodlettsville, Tennessee. The Scarecrow remained a part of the Hee Haw set until the series ended in 1974. Okay, so that's why I had the question about the Scarecrow. Was like, Well, here's the other interesting thing is that the show didn't actually end it, in 1974. It didn't? No. So this is the interesting thing about Hee Haw. This has nothing to do with murder. What happened was is it was canceled by CBS, as I think, who did it. But it was so popular that they went around, like Buck Owens and someone else, they basically went around to networks and were able to sell it like sell it to enough people that it became it's where it's like first run syndication so they kept making episodes up until the 80s so they were making new ones yes but it wasn't a part of a network they made direct deals with stations all over the country Wow. so there's people who just thought didn't even realize the show had been canceled wow that's crazy yeah i guess one of the higher-ups the reason that he wanted it canceled is he felt like he didn't that it was attracting viewers that they didn't want for their network. Oh, snotty. Yeah, like idiots basically. Yeah. Well, because the thing with Hee Haw was when it first came out, it was not a critical success, but people loved that show. The masses, like normal people but critics totally just ripped it to shreds i just don't i you know i didn't watch it a lot and i saw it some when it's I was corny li- yeah when i was little but i don't i don't really remember it it's very corny but i feel there's something about it and i'm sure part of it is just it's very nostalgic for me because i grew up watching it and i have really fond memories of that but i've went back and watched it since like episodes here and there and to me it's worth watching for like musical performances right. that they would have sure which sure. were great and the thing about it too is that that show exposed the country of the united states of america to country music yeah in a way other than like the radio that it really hadn't been exposed before like i knew some of that stuff about hee haw like i knew about it being got canceled and then the first run syndicate because that's a big deal like a lot of shows don't ever do that like now when a show gets canceled people are like there's campaigns made by fans like we want this show back and then every now and then it happens but anyway i didn't know though how much money buck owens made from that show until i listened to it wow like it's an insane amount of money he made a year like i think it equals like a million plus by today's standards like a year just for that show. That's incredible. And he kept doing that show until I think like 85 or 86. That's incredible. But anyway. Well, that was fun. Until next time. All right, fellas, like we practiced. Yeah. 
two, three, four. Come on down, come on down, hanging with the brothers tonight, yeah. Come on down to the brothers' common place tonight. Alrighty, welcome everyone to the Brothers' Commonplace, a comedy and crime podcast where we cover monsters, murders, mysteries, and more. And it is your boy, K-Dog, and joining me today is... What's up, guys? This is Tim, or the ghost of Vern Troyer. <laughs> oh, fuck. Damn. <laughs> okay, what's fuck. up, guys? This is Tim. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'll put that second one. Uh, and this is Spence, also known as the third Sticky Bandit. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah, dude. I didn't know we were using nicknames, man. I didn't get to... I just went with my normal. Well, mine was, like, super quick. Today, we're going to do a special episode in which we talk about a lovely role model of a woman by the name of Natasha Ryan. Ooh. <laughs> Natasha. I love when you do that, dude. We get one of those every episode. It's usually really good. I usually follow it up with, and was murdered by a gang of homosexual hunters. So I do like when we do uh, episodes of my father, though. <laughs> yeah, we did that a couple weeks ago. Ivan. Ivan Malat. <laughs> Uh, so, Natasha, born in 1984, was an Australian woman that went missing at the age of 14 in 1988. Hmm. Yeah. Wouldn't she have been only four? 1998. Oh, say, dude, that's what I was like, wait. <laughs> I didn't know I said I 88. I was, I was like, yeah, guys, you're about to yeah. get your fucking melons dude, blown dude, off Dude, I really thought we were. I thought we were. So, I was like, okay, I was ready right, for it. Here we go, guys. And all this occurred in her hometown of Rockhampton, Australia. Shout out dude. to Daniel, Australia. Is that where he's from? I don't know about Rockhampton, but... Dude, Dana so Rocks. <laughs> Dana Rocks. He's in Rockhampton. So this is like our short 15-minute like promo episode. And two minutes in, we're fucking mentioning Daniel. We, <laughs> we love you, brother. So Natasha, she was dropped off at school that morning. However, when it came time to take attendance, her name was called, but there was no hand to be raised. Oh, wow. So being 14 and missing from school, they go through the normal routine and try to make contact with the family and find out where she is. Natasha, who was known by some of the kids and teenagers as Grasshopper, was known to visit the elderly and sick during the holidays. So she sounds like a good person so far. Yeah. Does she have like an interesting head shape at all? Because <laughs> like I hear, I this is what I heard. I heard uh, she started hanging out with this dude. He was just a bad dude. And her black friend kept saying, no, he's this bad dude. And she just didn't believe him. And um, and then uh, they went to to break into this music place like that, like a bunch of like like guitars and like uh, amps and stuff like that. And she just had the right shaped head to get in through that window. Oh my God, it's is just, this Hey Arnold? It's just Hey Arnold. I can't believe you let me get that okay. far. Yo, um, Maria. That's not even that episode, <laughs> no, but I had to say it. Yeah. Yeah, dude. And, um, all right. Yeah. So, and nobody could find her and nobody had any ideas on where she could be. So the police, as well as the locals, undertook an extensive search trying to find her. But much like an unprepared Tim on D&D night, oh, no yes. dice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, shit. Happened last week. And Oh, also, I forgot to mention, um, in our last episode, we did uh, mention Roseanne Barr. And um, in honor... Never mind. I was going to be a joke about us doing this whole episode in blackface, but it's not fun. We don't have time for that joke, so let's keep going. Now, it wasn't too uncommon I'll for get her. the Sharpie. <laughs> now, it wasn't too uncommon. That, this is all 
a joke. We don't really do shit in blackface. That was satire. Well, Tooth might. Tooth's not here, though. He's probably yeah. doing blackface yeah, somewhere he probably else. Is, yeah. <laughs> so now, it wasn't too uncommon for her to run away from home. Just a month before, she had run away to be with her boyfriend. And I'll leave his name out, but I did see a few sources that said he was like 21 years old or something like that, and mm. she's only like 14. Damn. And also, he may have been a milkman. Dude, so. holy shit, my joke was going to be they just put a bowl of milk out on the porch <laughs> and she usually comes home oh like my a cat. God. Ew, he puts the fucking milk out there and she comes home to him. Oh, Ew. my God. She is a cat. Ugh, he's a milkman. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I thought he was a New York Yankees baseball player at the time, but fucking Mel Hall. Jeez. Uh, and he'd been in trouble in the past for things. Like in 1998, he was fined $1,000 for obstructing a police investigation into a previous incident that involved Natasha running away from home before. So she's oh, okay. ran away from home to... I think they said he took her to like a beach or a hotel or something. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, but that's nothing compared to what he was arrested for the year before, <laughs> which was fucking crop dusting people on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> fucking milkman. He's doing that fucking walk from that Monty Python thing. I don't even know what it is, but it dude walks funny. That's not <laughs> even a joke because I can't explain it, but it's funny. <laughs> and... Her boyfriend was brought down to the station in question, but he stated he had no idea where she was, and they let him go. Now, during this time, there were also three other local women that had all gone missing in Rockhampton. No, oh, wow. And as time went by, and with no body ever being found, they all assumed that she was gone, and the family was convinced that she was dead, so they threw a memorial service for her on her 17th birthday in 2001. Wow. And the family released balloons. They showed videos of her as a bridesmaid. And it was just an absolutely sad and heartbreaking day for the family because they're finally letting go of the hope that she was still alive. And now we're going to enter a new character into our story. And this guy is just a fucking real winner. Voldemort. Voldemort. Tim, you're not supposed oh, to fucking say it. My dude. bad, guys. Sorry. I'm sorry. You're forgiving. We're not scared of Voldemort. It's <laughs> true. Leonard Fraser. I think it's like Brendan Fraser's last name, like how you say it, like yeah, not Fra- Fraser. Yeah, with Fraser. F, Fraser, yeah. And some of you may know him as the Rockhampton rapist. Also, uh another alias he has is just what a peach, because <laughs> sounds like a real fucking good dude. He's a real shit bomb. I got I'm talking about a real shit bomb. <laughs> well, bombs away. And if you look at this dude, he kind of looks like that old guy in the video that describes a story about those barking dogs. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, I want to. So this guy, he was in prison and given a life sentence in September of 2000. The reason for that is because of the abduction, rape, and murder of a nine-year-old girl. Oh, so Jesus. Pretty much the worst you, worst yeah. person you could be, this guy is. Yeah, it's a fuck. Leonard Fraser. He just sounds like a fucking douchebag. Yeah, he does. Or a sitcom actor, but either one. <laughs> and, uh... I was trying to think of a blast from the past joke. I don't have oh one. Oh, my God, yes. He also raped a terminally ill cancer patient that he had previously lived with. So there's that also. Dude, just... What a fucking damn, fucking cancer shit. guy. Leave him damn. alone. Jesus. So he's in prison in 2000, and he made a deal with the police that in order for him to avoid being part of the general population in prison, he would confess to killing five women, including our girl, 14-year-old Natasha Ryan. So they find out that he confessed to killing this girl. Yeah. So now we're going to fast forward to April 11th, 2003. It's the middle of Leonard Fraser's trial. And this is the new trial, the one for all the murders that he confessed to. 
And then in the middle of the trial, the prosecutor stands up and says that Leonard Fraser is not guilty of the murder of Natasha Ryan and that she is, in fact, alive and found just the night before. The fuck? So that's great news, right? That's super rad and awesome. The family must be extremely happy and in shock. And and they are. The family is in the courtroom when this is announced because uh, of the case because they think that guy murdered her. And her father almost passed out and collapsed. And then the details came out on where she was. Any guesses? Uh, sex trafficking, maybe? I, I don't know. That's a good guess, actually. Um, yeah. Sad, but a good guess. Yeah. Chuck E. Cheese? That's a even better guess. No, that's, that's better than mine. That's more likely. She, for the last five years, while letting her entire family think that she was oh, murdered God, by a bitch. serial killer. Was and, she a masketeer? And rapist was, in fact... Living with her milkman boyfriend. What a dick, man. 2.5 miles away. Oh, come on. The entire time. Five fucking years. Send a fucking letter, bitch. You could throw that with a fucking paper airplane over their house. (laughs) And the thing is, is like, she never once could leave the house. So she's just stuck in this house the entire fucking time for five years. And whenever anyone was over the house, she would go hide in the cupboards and shit. And she would be like quietly munching on (laughs) Cheez-Its. Hopefully stale ones, you fucking grapefruit-necked bitch. I don't even know what that means. I just threw together words. I fucking mad libs to. Yeah, uh, ma- makes sense to me. So, so this was this was something she did willingly. This wasn't yeah. like the dude. Yeah, Chandra. she just fucking ran away, made her whole family and all her friends think she was dead for five years. She so she knew that this trial was going on and that her parents thought she was raped and murdered. Yeah, let's let's let them let's let my family think a serial murderer and rapist killed me. So, all right, let's keep going, though. Mm. So, the police, they raided her boyfriend's house, and they found her all alien gonzalez up in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never get to use that joke. I will never get to use that. (laughs) I will never forget the picture of him where they're fucking right. He's, like, in that closet crying and screaming. They got, like, all these fucking guns up to him. Oh, shit. The dad really wanted her back. And when the police asked her, like, why didn't you tell anyone? Why the why would you let your family think this? And this is what her answer was. Quote, because the lie had become too big. Oh my God. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what? Yeah. The thing is, is like, yeah, I know. Mm. I And this is what's kind of fucked up is like mm. reading and researching this. And this is obviously mostly a joke. But you're kind of more pissed off at her than the serial rapist. Yeah. And, like, don't get me wrong. That's a joke, obviously, and he's a million times worse than all this. Yeah, but we're but not. what a bitch. Yeah, I'll say we're not focusing on him What right a now. bitch. Yeah, I mean, he's a douche, too, but, I mean, she's she's up there. And the whole time that while she's, like, living in this house, anytime, like we say, anytime anyone goes over, she has to hide in closets and in cupboards and shit. Her milkman boyfriend still went out and lived his normal life, so he's out like partying, going to clubs, and working, doing all that <laughs> shit. And it was even said that he started dating her fucking older sister for a little Fuck bit. Yes, dude. I also like that we've said his profession more than Bob milkman. Vance. More than, Bob Vance. Is great, more than Bob Vance says this. And this motherfucker, milkman. <laughs> fucking milkman. And like he said that he denied knowing where she was because she threatened to kill herself if he mentioned anything. And um, at the time, she actually had attempted suicide before. Mm. Like, she tried uh, slashing her wrists and told her school counselor that uh, at one point she was pregnant to a 19-year-old. And she also was said to use a variety of drugs whenever she was in school, too. So, 
Don't wonder if this dude just fucking hated his life the whole time Fuck she was living there. Oh, I say he probably did. I would eventually just throw that bitch outside, yelled really loud that she was out there, out here. Locked the door. You have like a fucking, you have a laser pointer. You aim from the police station all the way to where she is in the fucking cupboard. Exactly. You no, know, it's behind. It's behind the thin mints. <laughs> behind the thin mint. You behind the thin mints, dude. Uh, yeah, that just makes me think of the fucking uh, bench warmers. <laughs> and quote: This is something she says. I'll never say why I left. And then in regards to her milkman boyfriend. He was protecting me, and I caused him to do it. It was my fault that he did it. No, she took the blame. And it was my decision to run away. He was doing something really lovely and protecting me, and I felt like I should have been or deserved to be punished. So they get fucking punished, all right. She was fined $1,000. Nice, bitch. Should be more. (laughs) Way more. (laughs) And he spent a year in jail for perjury. It's like the cost of one iPhone these days. (laughs) It's a duty really is. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, he spends a year in jail for perjury, and then they got married, and they also eventually had three kids. So yeah, oh. they're still together. Oh man! And um, yeah, this is uh, this is my favorite part is um, during their wedding, they prevented anyone from taking any pictures so that they could sell their story and wedding photos, which they did for like two hundred thousand bucks to Women's Day magazine or something oh, like yeah. that. And entrepreneur, fuck. I hate them. It Fuck sucks, them. But, I it hate sucks, them. It sucks, but it's a good fucking idea. I fucking yeah. hate them. Yeah, dude. it sucks. It's How do they get? And they sign like a deal for interviews and shit. Like I mean, just you fuck. You didn't do anything. You ran away. Made your family think you got raped dude, and murdered. Here's fucking two hundred thousand dollars. All right, guys, we're gonna fake our deaths. Oh God, we're gonna end up with two hundred thousand each. Yeah, yeah, might as well. Also, you know the punishments for those kids is just fucking putting them in the cupboards at that point. <laughs> I know, Get in there, fucker! I was in there for fucking. It's like like know, ten like, years. Our grandparents are like you know back in my dad to walk uphill with my fucking nuts dragging on a cactus or whatever. There's <laughs> bull. You're, it's a bullshit story, grandfather. That never happened. But this girl's like back in my dad to fucking hide in the cupboard with stale cheeses, and <laughs> you're gonna. Wash the dishes or something. I don't know. <laughs> I I don't like her. Jesus. No, she's, she's I, I don't idiot. like her at all. Yeah, I mean, smart. The 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 wedding thing was smart. I mean, I I agree I that that was smart. I mean, it's douchebag move, but but and they said there's only like thirty five. Like they had a small wedding, so it had like thirty thirty five people there. I mean, m- not many people must like them. So, know, yeah, dude. who the fuck would go if her fan if I was her fan? I mean, of course they're happy she's alive and mm. stuff. But it's like you're fucking two miles away. You oh, made no. us think that for five years. Dude, if I'm the family, I'm hiring a fucking sniper to take them both out during that wedding. <laughs> that the guy who's all, like the 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 dude in jail who was like the murder and rapes and shit. What are what they're like? With like, yeah, we know you agreed to this deal to uh, get yourself out of general population, but uh, you just made that shit up, dude. <laughs> like, hey, guy, you just made that shit up, man. Dude, how the fuck did he even know her name and shit? I think the police probably brought it up uh, okay. I, I'm not quite sure but yeah fuck that guy everyone in this story except for like her family can just fuck off dude but what if what if he was planning on killing her oh. and he didn't because he couldn't find her because she was in those fucking cupboards <laughs> <laughs> fuck it this whole time I've been trying to think of an Indian in the cupboard joke uh, but I don't have one no, I mean that's still one when she come never mind alright <laughs> So um, their next deal deal will be to sell little action figures of them. Oh my god! And then god. when you put those in the cupboard, <laughs> when they go, when you put those in the cupboard, they fucking they vanish and come back five years later. <laughs> <laughs> so alrighty, um, yeah. So that is uh, just like my socks. That, 
that is the story in case of Natasha Ryan. So, yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. Be good. Stay safe. Laugh the dark stuff. Hashtag Wildman. Hashtag Wildman. Please, Spence. For the promo. For the promo. (laughs) Hashtag Wildman. Oh, baby.